this thing. All right. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the meeting at this meeting of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense. Glad to see everyone and those of my fellow commissioners were able to make it today. We have a, a pretty packed house, which is very nice. Before we begin, I would like to take a quick moment to thank our donors for their support and the Hudson Institute for serving as our fiscal sponsor. December 2014, the commission held its very first public meeting to inform our foundational report and national blueprint for biodefense, leadership and major reform needed to optimize efforts. That report contained 87 action items to implement 33 recommendations. We thought that maybe 87 action items might have been too ambitious, but Congress and the administrations disagreed. And I'm happy to report that they have addressed 65 of the 87 action items in our blueprint, either partially or completely over the past seven and a half years. Some of the key areas of biodefense on which we have focused are prevention, deterrence, and attribution of biological events, which will be the topics of today's meeting. To remind myself, as well as our other commissioners and audience, prevention involves reducing the availability and accessibility of biological agents and materials that could be used for malicious purposes. Deterrence involves dissuading potential adversaries from conducting or supporting a biological attack by imposing costs and consequences. And attribution involves identifying and holding accountable those who, who are responsible for a biological attack or incident. These are essential components of a robust biodefense, and they can help reduce the likelihood and the impact of a biological attack or outbreak. This is why we are here today, to hear from experts and stakeholders about the current state of prevention, deterrence, and attribution of biological events, to identify gaps and challenges, and to explore opportunities and solutions. Today's meeting is the fourth and final in a series that will help inform a comprehensive update of our first blueprint for biodefense, an, an effort we are currently referring to as Blueprint 2.0. It's a very novel title, I thought. While the, national, while the nation continues to respond to and recover from the COVID-19 pandemic, we must do what we can to prevent other naturally occurring infections, infectious diseases, biological attacks, and accidentally released pathogens from occurring and prepare for them if they do. We must also worry about the continued and new pursuit of biological weapons by other nation states and terrorist groups. This year, the State Department again reported that Russia and North Korea possess active biological weapons programs with activities in China and Iran also raising concern that they too may be acting in violation of the Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention known as the BWC. The unconscionable and unjustifiable Russian invasion of Ukraine continues to stay top of mind for many. Our hearts go out to the citizens of Ukraine and may God bless them as they defend their country against these baseless acts of aggression. Not only has Russia's incursion increased the threat posed by nuclear and chemical weapons, but it has also greatly increased the threat of biological attacks. Russia seeks to obtain and control critical infrastructure throughout the region. And at the very least, Russia could take control of the high-level biological laboratories in Ukraine to add more resources to the Russian biological weapons program. 
And at worst, Russia could use biological weapons to attack the Ukraine populace. The three topics we are here to discuss today are important in the context of Russia's invasion and their potential use of biological weapons. If Russia is planning to use biological weapons, the international community must work to prevent them from carrying out an attack. And we must have a robust deterrence strategy to dissuade Russia from using their biological weapons. Finally, if Russia did use biological weapons, we need to have attribution capabilities to accurately determine if Russia is indeed at fault. The threats from nation states that already have or are developing biological weapons programs and from terrorist organizations looking to obtain and use biological agents and weapons are increasing rapidly. For example, the horrific fighting in Sudan between the army and the paramilitary rapid support forces has resulted in one side taking over a national public health laboratory in a region that harbors measles, cholera, polio, and other potentially harmful pathogens. While this was not a high containment facility with some of the most dangerous pathogens, losing control of it remains highly concerning. The threat of biological events is not new. It has been with us for decades, and it will continue to be a significant challenge for years to come. We must do what we can to prevent and deter them, and when they occur, not if, attribute their source as quickly as possible. And Senator Levin introduces Senator Congressman Greenwood, who says, I'm both today. Uh, we, as we all know, biological threats are not new, but they have become more diverse, complex, and dangerous in recent years. We have witnessed the devastating impacts of naturally occurring events, such as COVID-19, and clearly note the potential for deliberate attacks. These threats pose serious risks to our national security, public health, and economic stability. One of the areas we, that we have focused on extensively is attribution, the process of identifying the source and the origin of a biological event, whether natural, accidental, or intentional. Attribution is critical for several reasons. It enables accountability for those who perpetrate bioterrorism or violate international norms. It helps to deter future attacks by signaling our resolve and readiness. It informs our response and recovery efforts by providing situational awareness and evidence, and it enhances our prevention and preparedness measures by identifying gaps and vulnerabilities. However, attribution is also very challenging because it requires timely, accurate, and reliable information from multiple sources and disciplines. It involves complex scientific, technical, legal, and political considerations. It faces various obstacles and limitations, such as lack of access, cooperation, and transparency. And it may have significant consequences for national security, diplomacy, and public trust. Unfortunately, the nation's attribution capabilities are severely lacking. Just take the inability to defin definitively identify the origin of COVID-19 pandemic, for example. Over three years into this pandemic, and we still are not sure how this virus emerged or where exactly it came from. Thankfully, there are policies and technologies we can leverage to improve our attribution capabilities. International blueprint for, in our national blueprint for biodefense, we recommended that the nation establish a national biological attribution decision-making apparatus that takes into account 
standards or burdens of proof in the U.S. criminal justice system, evidence, information, and intelligence regarding the source, accuracy, reliability, timeliness, credibility, and defensibility of that evidence, information, and intelligence, and national security considerations. We also addressed attribution to our, to our uh, the Apollo Program for Biodefense and Athena Agenda reports, focusing on the development of needed technologies. I am sure that these recommendations, along with other improvements, which I am excited to learn about today, would greatly strengthen our national biodefense. Look forward to hearing from our distinguished panelists today and engaging in a productive discussion with you all. And with that, I would like to recognize Secretary Shalala for opening comments. Thank you. I think I'll pass on opening comments so we can get on with the uh, panels and associate myself with all of your comments, both sets. <laughs> Senator Daschle. Well, I'm inclined to do the same thing that Donna just did. Um, those were extensive but very good comments, Mr. Chairman, and uh, appreciate very much you setting the stage. I, I agree with you. We've had some excellent uh, meetings in the past, and uh, I know this one will be equally as productive. I, I would just want to, number one, welcome our newest member to the commission. Uh, I've been an admirer of Congressman Upton for a long time and delighted that he can be part of our commission um, going forward. I would just say one thing that I, I hope we can emphasize as well. Obviously, we have to look at these three challenges in two contexts, the man-made context and the natural context. And I, I, um, I'm very concerned, frankly, and will remain so. Uh, I'm sure the whole commission is with regard to the devastating uh, loss of infrastructure in our public health system in this country and how incapable we will be to address another pandemic of the consequences of COVID going forward. Um, we're in worse shape in many respects than we were three years ago. And uh, we aren't committing the resources, we aren't committing the kind of priority that I think is so critical for public health. And I'm hopeful that as we look at these challenges going forward, we're gonna be cognizant of the important role that public health is gonna have to play regardless of whether it's a natural or a man-made experience. So with that, uh, I'll yield back the rest of my time. Thank you. And um, I would now like to introduce our newest member of the commission, uh, the Honorable Congressman Fred Upton. I've known Fred for about 30 years or something like that. Uh, we met when we were young teenagers. Um, Fred served for 36 years representing his district in Michigan. Um, he did so with aplomb. He is a he is what a congressman should be. He is um, he's intelligent. He's in it for all of the right reasons. He's bipartisan by nature. He's collegial by nature. And uh, he served our country very, very well. He chaired the Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, co-authored the uh, 21st Century Cures Act, uh, and innumerable other accomplishments during his career. And we're delighted to have you with us. And I yield to the, my former chairman. Yeah. Well, thank you, my man. <coughs> it was. Uh... It was a great serving, and uh, Tom Daschle was, was a friend that we worked together on a, a lot of different things, particularly on the NIH and, and other health-related efforts. And obviously, I served also with Secretary Shalala, and we, we did a good number of things. Uh, and then, of course, she is a Big Ten guy. I'm a Wolverine. She was a Wisconsinite a Badger, but uh, and then moved to Florida. But anyway, 
I'm delighted to be here. I was excited to be asked uh, by by Jim to actually consider serving on this board. And as I look back at my career, a lot of votes, <laughs> a lot of different issues, uh, and one that really never thought I would run for office. I was I was hoping to be called by somebody to write about the Chicago Cubs or the Detroit Tigers uh, as a journalism major from the University of Michigan, and nobody called. <laughs> I ended up uh, working at the White House, uh, heading Congressional Affairs at OMB, and uh, folks uh, came to me at, at one point and asked me to come back and run for Congress in Michigan, and I said, no, I'm happily married, still am, uh, uh, and two black labs, and uh, no, I get to see the president every every week, and uh, I'm very happy. And uh, but they convinced me otherwise, and, and I I ran and won. But I used the Reagan model: Republican president or the Democratic Congress, and he got a lot of things done. And of course, the real test was re-election. <laughs> I know that more than any right now, right? Forty-nine states, uh, only losing Mondale's uh, Minnesota uh, back then. But my objective was always to be bipartisan on virtually every issue that I worked on. One of my first issues was uh, working with Kwai Siem Fume, now again a, a colleague. But we worked on a, a bill to provide tax credits for small businesses that were faced with making structural changes to deal with the Americans with Disabilities Act, a, a, a bill that I had voted for. And uh, we got it done. Uh, Rosinkowski allowed that provision to be in the bill. And it was a big win, but whether it was on Great Lakes or anything, but I ended up serving on energy and commerce uh, and on the health subcommittee back in 1991 and met so many families uh, with different diseases that were just so troubling. And I knew that we were probably the only country uh, that would be able to have the resources to find the cures for these diseases. And I teamed up when I became chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee with Diana DeGette, a great partner, Democrat from Denver. And literally, we hosted dozens and dozens of meetings uh, all around the country. Not only did she come to my district, I came to hers, but we went really all over the country, uh, whether it be roundtables or hearings. And at the end of the day, uh, moved a bill out of committee 53 to nothing. 392 to 26 on the House floor, 92 to 8 in the Senate, survived a filibuster that even Chuck Schumer supported. That's pretty hard to do, uh, but, but we did that. And at the end of the day, Mitch McConnell said that this was the most significant piece of legislation that was passed in that Congress. We were troubled. We were troubled that venture capitalists uh, started to invest overseas instead of here. And we sat down with the FDA. Uh, we sat down with the NIH and we said, what can we do to get th those cures back here? What, what do we need to do? And uh, I can remember a, a fellow commissioner here, Peggy Hamburg. She was then the director of the FDA, commissioner. And she said, well, we need more money. I said, how much do you need? She said, uh, $250 million. I said, done. When she saw that we were serious, she added it another 250 she did times two, <laughs> oh, <I forgot. laughs> and we did it because we needed their help. We needed to enlist everybody on board. We, we worked with pharma. We worked the disease groups. 
were really terrific in, in helping us get co-sponsors and coming to the table with ideas of things that we could do. And it, at the end of the day, it's exactly what we did. Uh, we expedited the approval of drugs and devices. We coupled it with $45 billion more in health research. And I should have mentioned that I really cut my teeth on health issues back in uh, 96, I guess it was, uh, I'm a member of the health subcommittee when Speaker Gingrich came to me and asked me to be the lead to double the money for the NIH. Uh, and we did that, uh, and we got that through. But of course, since then, with inflation, we haven't kept up with it. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to work with the NIH to, in essence, build that baseline $45 billion more than it had been. And back then, back then, not too, seems like yesterday, Speaker Ryan, a disciple of Jack uh, Kemp and you know everybody else said, you gotta pay for it. And we did. We found the pay force. Interesting little story. Chuck Schumer stole the pay force for the 9-11. <laughs> we had to find the pay force again, and we did, but this time we kept it in our pocket. We didn't share with anyone what they were, uh, but we did pay for it. And uh, again, we survived a lot of votes uh, and we got it done. And it was, and I've got to say too, uh, you know, as I look at our Senate counterparts, Lamar Alexander was a prince. Uh, his focus, of course, was education and being, you know, the chair of that committee, that was where he wanted to get that bill through and it got stymied a little bit. So he let us have the reins in the House, said, I'll be a partner, just tell me what to do. And he was a partner and we got it done. He and Patty Murray worked with us. Joe Biden was vice president. He's always cared about the cancer moonshot and other things. And we sat down with him at length in the old executive office building and walked through. He knew his stuff. Uh, he knew what we were trying to do. And he was an enormous help. And at the end of the day, of course, our leadership, including the Speaker Pelosi back then, well, then later Speaker Pelosi, uh, we were able to get the, uh, the votes uh, to get it done. Literally the last day of the Congress was the last bill that President Obama signed into law. And as I look back at it now, so it was signed in, Jan December of 2016, we've come a long way. You look at some of the diseases that are out there like cystic fibrosis. Um, you look at some of the, the, the vision things uh, that have happened, uh, the research that's, that's happening. We made a really positive impact. And who would have guessed that in 2020, when COVID came, something that no one knew anything about, because of what we did with our bill, HR6, it allowed all of the companies, J&J, &J, Pfizer, which happens to be headquartered, or not headquartered, but their largest facility was in my district in, in Kalamazoo, uh, but also Moderna, it allowed them to proceed to find a vaccine for this much faster and get it approved much faster, maybe six or eight months faster than it otherwise would have been but it also allowed them to produce it in advance of the approval. So for me, because it was my district, I sat down with the, the Pfizer folks in Kalamazoo in the summer of 20, and they were then beginning to buy up all the dry ice, man, that would have been a <laughs> good inside uh, stock tip. Uh, 
buy all the dry ice you can in the entire Midwest because they didn't have freezers that were capable of keeping the vaccine at 50, 60, uh, below zero. But they did that. And so when the approval came in December of 20, they were ready to ship virtually the very next day. And, and it was so exciting to see those trucks leave the facility in Portage, Michigan, on UPS and, and uh, FedEx to go out and, and deliver. I was in Cambodia in, uh, uh, last year in the, in the fall, and while I was there, I watched the Pfizer vaccine being delivered uh, to Cambodians uh, for COVID. These things never would have been able to happen without the enactment uh, of our bill. So we came together. Uh, we came together in a very strong bipartisan way. Uh, and uh, we worked with the House and the Senate and the administration. And literally at the end of the day, you could say that, yes, that bill saved just in America hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives because we were able to get that vaccine not only to all the corners of the U.S., but also literally uh, around the world as well. So as we look to the future, we know we're going to have these again. That's why this commission is here. You know, what is it that we can learn? It's got to be bipartisan. We also have to have the resources. You know, one of the things that the, uh, President Biden has done early on, actually it was his very first meeting uh, with a Republican in the Oval Office, was me and Roy Blunt and a few others as we talked about ARPA-H. In essence, a, a new agency duplicating what DARPA did for defense, but on health. And even though his initial request was $4 billion, uh, we did fund it at a billion. We did authorize it through our committee. Uh, I retired from Congress in January of this year. But Energy and Commerce Committee, we did move it through in a bipartisan vote on the House floor, and we did get a billion dollars for it in the uh, omnibus appropriation that President Biden signed into law at the, the end of last year for this fiscal year. And obviously, it'll be uh, one of the, I know they had a discussion on it in the Senate this last week. They had a, they had a hearing on it. But again, we are <laughs> blessed as a nation uh, to have the researchers, our universities, and man, they were terrific from Penn State, your neighborhood. We had a hearing up there, Jim. Uh, you know, the, the Mayo folks, I mean, obviously University of Michigan, but uh, MD Anderson, I mean, Harvard. I mean, we had some wonderful folks really provide us with the expertise to get things done. And I'm hoping that that's what ARPA-H will be able to do as well as they get their feet on the ground. I talked to Secretary Becerra, uh, uh, and I know that they're very close on, on figuring out where, where this is all going to be. But it's important uh, that the Congress uh, fund it, and hopefully at a, at a higher level as well, so that we can find the cures for these diseases. I mean, just today, uh, reading the Washington Post, uh, story about AI uh, and dealing with uh, MS and how people that will lose their speech, and we all know folks with MS, will be able to still be able to communicate with their own voice uh, with some of the new technology that's coming. So we are really on the cusp of some startling uh, developments uh, down the road. And because of what we did with 
uh, our bill on uh, HR 6, uh, 21st Century Cures, we're going to get to the finish line a lot faster than other we otherwise would have and really help resolve and find the cures for these diseases that just are so heartbreaking when, when we hear and, and see them, whether it be rare diseases or, or whatnot. So I was glad to be a part of that. Every member on our committee had uh, provisions that they were concerned with, and we were able to include it in a, in a pretty comprehensive bill and, and make a real difference at the end of the day. So with that, Mr. Chairman, Acting Chairman, uh, I yield back. Thank you. So um, you wanted to be a sports writer and nobody called, but uh, nobody called. <laughs> duty called and you, and you answered that call and we, the country's better for it. Thank you. Um, Fred, um, now, we still have uh, things to do. I talked about the fact that we had 87 recommendations and, and a lot of them, most of them have been enacted, but it's been difficult. Um, you know as well as anybody in the world that the Congress tends to uh, um, respond to the immediate crisis and then go on to the next one without thinking about preparing themselves for you know future crises. Um, what you know, as someone who who's spent so much time in the trenches and, and, and in such a bipartisan way, what advice might you have for this commission on which you now serve about how to keep Congress focused on preparedness for both bio? Um, the possibility of, of another the next pandemic or a bioterror event? You know, as I'm also going to have my hat on as a, as a former OMB official. It's, it's not often the policy that drives the budget. It's the budget that drives the policy. And so it's really critical at this point that we make sure that there's an adequate funding level for these types of activities. Uh, obviously, there's a big meeting just a couple blocks away from here uh, today uh, on the debt ceiling. Nobody wants a default, can't have that. Uh, but I, I sense that ultimately uh, there'll be some agreement on funding for important sections. And you've already seen different stories, trial balloons, and NASA had one this last week, et cetera. You know, I, you know Tom Cole, former Senator Roy Blunt, I mean, there's a really good bipartisan coalition in the House and the Senate uh, looking for funding for these. We got to make sure that that's there and that the Appropriations Committee makes that a priority so that we can have the increases that we need to allow, whether it be the private sector, uh, with, a, with our universities and, and terrific ones, uh, to really have that funding source uh, to move forward and to have the incentives to do it here versus uh, someplace else, which is why one of the things we learned with the, with the venture capitalists, but it's it's the funding that's really gonna make the difference. You know, Alzheimer's, as we know, is uh, it's gonna cost Medicare more than a trillion dollars in one year in 2030 if we don't find a, a, a way to slow that down or, or find a cure. Think of the savings that we can have to the federal government ultimately if we find the cures for these things. So. You know, whether it's a, a new pandemic and, you know, it's important to find out how this thing all, you know, started, uh, whether we have the resources uh, for folks, whether we, we have a good education system on, you know, our vaccines good for you or not. I mean, that was, you know, it's clearly an issue as well. Uh, we got to make sure that the, the funding is there and that it is a real priority for us to, to move forward on. 
Thank you. <coughs> Alzheimer's is costing us, <coughs> Alzheimer's care is costing $12 billion a week right yeah. now. Yeah. Secretary Shalala. Thank you very much. Um, and I want to add my enthusiasm for our new colleague and for his leadership um, in Congress. Um, Freddie, I have a, um, a question about uh, money versus execution. Um, Tom talked a little about uh, the institutions and how the institutions are important, whether it's the CDC, the FDA, or the NIH. And Congress um, makes the policy, appropriates the money, but getting money for the institutions themselves that are going to execute, and in this town, you don't get much credit for the execution. You get credit for the policy um, and for the budget um, on occasion. And the need to build bipartisan support for the institutions that are going to execute these. For example, when you, uh, when we all worked on doubling the NIH budget, um, some of that money went into the Vaccine Research Center, which was a new center at the NIH named after the bumpers, if I remember correctly, which made a huge difference in COVID because out of the NIH during that period was developed the platform that we used uh, for COVID and for a variety of other things. So could you talk a little about uh, efforts to put together a bipartisan coalition to, uh, to invest in the institutions, um, not simply fast-tracking with FDA, but the other kinds of things, paying the scientists enough so they can compete with the universities, for example. So here's an idea, and I'm, I'm an optimist, all right? I, I'm a Cubs fan. <laughs> I watched last night. I knew they were going to lose. It was on MLB TV against the Cardinals. Um, you know, I believe in, in people and the process and the relationships, and you were a wonderful partner as we served together in, in the house. When we learned about, when I learned about the government back in ninth grade civics, it's wholly different <laughs> in real life. You thought if you had a good idea, you just move it forward, you have an amendment, and you had, you know, different rules and procedures and uh, whatnot, but... Sadly, where we have been the last couple of years is, you know, when I voted for the omnibus in December last year to keep the government open literally Christmas time, it was one vote and it was, I don't know how many hundred pages it was. Nobody could read it. Uh, it was presented to us the day before. So much for 12 bills, 12, you know, one for each appropriation, no amendments were allowed, here it is, take it or leave it. And it funded the balance of, you know, it was a couple trillion dollars uh, for the balance of fiscal year 23. One of the, when I first came to Congress, we had this wonderful guy, Bill Natcher. Uh, he was on appropriations. Uh, he was, I think he was in the chair every time we had an appropriation bill on the floor but he was fair-minded, and sometimes these bills would take a week. The labor age bill would be a week on the House floor. And any member, whether they be, you know, a relatively new member, and back then I was, uh, you could offer an amendment on different issues within the scope, uh, germaneness, uh, of that particular bill. 
and people knew what you're doing. If you had an in voted to increase the NIH, you had to have an amendment within that bill to decrease something else. But we've lost that accountability. Now you just vote on one bill and it's like this thick and nobody knows what those individual line items ought to be. The, the process has broken down. In getting back to regular order, something that Kevin McCarthy promised he'd do, so we'll see if this promise comes true or not. I saw there's a little thing in the post today of promises made, and, and, you know, they haven't done any appropriation bills yet. But we need to get to back to that. So that particularly the rest of us can watch what Congress is doing and say, why did you vote to cut this or not add to this or, or whatever, so that there's some accountability on those members of Congress as they work to get the votes to get something done. I know that funding for things that we care about in this room, the NIH, the FDA, and others, we know how important that is to the entire country. And that you can have a coalition of Republicans and Democrats that work together to make sure that the funding level is where it should be versus across the board cuts or anything else that might be discussed. And so to me, you know, as we look forward, the quicker we can get back to regular order and to have separate votes on those things and, and be accountable to the people that we represented in, in the Congress is, is very important and allows groups, <clears throat> interest groups to weigh in as well instead of just, you know, watching this process move without without any really uh, nuts and bolts to it. So I think that would, that would be helpful if uh, they really have spend the time to debate the issues and, and be able to have those separate votes. Thank you. Senator Daschle, question for Congressman Upton. Well, first of all, let me just compliment Congressman Upton on his Fred eloquent. Still Fred. <laughs> Mr. Leader. Fred. Uh, <laughs> my colleague Fred on the uh, eloquent answer he just gave to Donna. Um, and I, I just couldn't be more emphatic about my agreement in his call for regular order. We've lost it and with it we've lost functional legislative government in my opinion. Uh, almost every piece of legislation that passes today is what I refer to generally is top-down. It's created by leadership in concert with the administration, and everybody's required to vote on it without an opportunity for amendment and oftentimes even debate. And I think it's just a, a real tragic uh, threat to our demo democratic uh, republic as we consider the legislative process and its importance for input from a Fred Upton and a and, and uh, you know, somebody from California and somebody from Denver and somebody from Florida, you don't have that today. And so I'm, I, I, I only wish, and I, I'm sure Fred doesn't have any better solution than I do about how we return to regular order because it's so critical. And it's kind of, I mean, we probably have a lot of inside baseball people here in the audience today, so you, you, you know how important it is, so we don't have to get into detail. I guess I would just ask Fred, over the years that I was in the Congress, I, I saw a diminution um, to a certain extent of, of, of real bipartisanship. I had the good fortune to work with three incredibly 
wonderful Republican leaders, Bob Dole, Trent Lott, and Bill Frist, and we were able to do a lot of things together. But it seems to me over the last couple of decades, we've just seen uh, an erosion of the opportunities for bipartisanship. And I, I would really just love your perspective. Is it how much harder is it today? You just left in January. I'd love your reflections on the state of bipartisanship. My perception is there's not much of it, but I, I, I could be wrong. It's been a long time since I served. But having just left, how do you look at bipartisanship today, and what are the prospects going forward? Well, one of the things that kept me going was I was very involved with the bipartisan group called the uh, Problem Solvers Caucus, PSC. Uh, I was not an original member of that, um, but they lured me in, and it was something that I really made a priority. Uh, 60 members, Josh Gothheimer, Democrat from New Jersey, and Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania, Republican. Uh, we would meet literally every week, every week Wednesdays from 9 to 10. Uh, and when COVID hit, we did it by Zoom. We had Zelensky with us uh, one day on a Zoom. We brought in some CEOs, different companies uh, to come in, and, and they all praised us. They said, this has got to be bipartisan. That's why I'm here. You know, we had a pledge that you wouldn't work against any of the members that were there on, of the other party. So you wouldn't, you know, I was approached by some, you know, leader, tribute to their opponents or you know, whatever, appear at a different event and the answer was no because we made a pledge that we were supportive of each other and what was said in that room stayed and we were the ones that put together the the package on infrastructure uh, we worked with the senate senator portman uh, and others with no labels uh, we did the the chips bill and you know i went with the president biden to the Detroit Auto Show in September, and CEO of GM, Mary Barra, gave me a bear hug. She said, I'm so glad you saved our industry. Uh, we couldn't survive without that chip spill that was done. Um, we worked together on things, and, and we were the glue to really move forward on those things. Uh, as we look at this debt ceiling issue, it's, again, I think our group, from my former group, uh, came forward with a proposal that I think is on the the backstage here, if things really do fall apart of, of trying to get a proposal uh, through the House and Senate that can be bipartisan to avoid a default. And yeah, it's going to have some curbs on spending, um, but not as draconian as uh, what, what the House passed, uh, 217 to 215 uh, this last week, but at least it was a step forward to, to finding a solution. But with this divided government, and it's going to stay that way for a while, and it's even if it doesn't, it's still pretty close. A couple people can, can make a real difference, and that's why things have to be bipartisan, which is why things like No Labels and the Problem Solvers Caucus really have a foot, have an arm on the table to try and get things done. So I'm still an optimist, um, and, uh, but, but, you know, the sun's going to come up. But man, we got some difficulties up there, uh, that is for sure. And uh, the quicker we can return back to something like regular order and to really use the friendships, and you were terrific in, in your role, that's really how we met. And we, we got some awards together, particularly as it related to the NIH. But that's how you get things done. It's those relationships. And you can't be throwing hardballs at someone 
and expect them to, to cooperate at the end of the day. So you need that civility. Uh, you need you need to get to know them, their families, uh, their districts, uh, to try and, and put together a, a collage of, of winners to do what we all wanted to do when we first ran for office, and that was to make a difference. Well, <clears throat> it, it's clear to me that we're all going to have to go back to Congress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Dr. I'm still happy. I don't know if I'd be happily married if, if that happened. I have another example, actually. On surprise billing, we actually had to buck both the leadership of energy and commerce and education and labor, and we used the Rules Committee and our votes on the Rules Committee, three of us, uh, to force the speaker to send it to Ways and Means to get a compromise. But I work with the Docs Caucus, yeah. most of whom were Republicans, um, to work with energy and commerce to get a, uh, a bipartisan solution. I was not chairman of energy and commerce. Yes, I know, that. <laughs> I know that. But the, I, I think the speaker understood that she didn't really have the votes um, uh, to pass the bills that, the bill that came out of both of those committees. But no one had ever used the Rules Committee and their votes on the Rules Committee. But we were freshmen. and. Um, knew it was the speaker's com committee where all the amendments had to go through, but also knew that it was important that we forged a compromise on that yeah. particular issue. Dr. Troy, do you have a question for the congressman, for Freddie? Yeah, yes, I do. Thank you for those remarks and for your service, sir. Dr. Walensky has just announced that she is going to be leaving CDC. She also acknowledged by her own admission that CDC did a very poor job in the pandemic. And I think CDC, and she thinks CDC needs reforms. I didn't think her reforms were sufficient to solve the underlying problem, which is that CDC is insufficiently attentive to communicable diseases and focused too much on behavioral diseases. What do you think that the Congress can do in a bipartisan manner to address the problems of CDC? And are you optimistic that your methodology of bipartisanship can address this issue? So I'm going to answer your question, no, <laughs> even though I'm self-described as, as an optimist. I just, it does need reform. She recognized that. Um, and sorry that she's leaving a variety of different reasons, for sure. And I said earlier this morning, I was asked, or I asked the question maybe, I, I don't expect a successor to be named or confirmed by the Senate. Um, till after the next election, which I think is not good, but it's just reality uh, in terms of where we are. Um, it does need reform. They need hearings. Um, it does need to be bipartisan. But we're running out of time. Uh, you know, it's in essence, it's June already. Uh, we only have one really pressing issue right now, of course, that's the debt ceiling. Um, and hopefully that's going to be resolved in the next couple weeks. And then we're going to be into the appropriation process. And we're already into the presidential election stuff, which, again, takes time away. And I don't, you know, when, when I think about what we did on cures, it was a three-year process. You know, I'll say, 
Henry Waxman was not real pleased that I didn't team up with him to be the Upton Waxman bill on cures versus to get. But I knew what Henry was going to be gone. We weren't going to be able to get it done in a year. It was going to take three years, and he was going to be gone. And DeGette did a wonderful job. The CDC is going to take more than just what's left in the, count, in the sand dial here um, in this Congress. It's going to, be a, it's going to need to be a three-year effort. We're going to need a director who has, knows what he or she is, is doing. And we're going to have to work, you know, again, I'm just a House guy, but, I mean, the Senate has to be involved. And sadly, we don't have someone like Lamar right now. It's, it's Bernie. <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know how you get the, the coalition together uh, under the current scenario in the Senate in this Congress. I mean, it just, it is what it is. Um, so, but they, but they too need to say, you know, it's sort of like, we went to Francis Collins and we said, what is it that you need? We went to the FDA. I mean, in addition to the money, what is it that you need? We went to the pharmaceutical companies. What is it that you need? We went to the universities. We kicked their tires. We went to the rare disease. I mean, we went to all these different folks to put together this coalition. And that needs to happen with the CDC as well. I mean, they need to come up with some proposals. I think they know that they're, they're flailing. Um, but we're going to need some leadership from them and the administration to say, you know, how is it that we can do this? But sadly, I don't see it happening in this uh, next year and a half because I just think that we're not going to see a lot of good things happen um, in terms of production uh, of major bills that, that have to be done, knowing that it's, as they say, every four years the most important election in our lifetime. All right, thank you, Congressman Freddie. Uh, we now call our panel, and we have, um, if you'll come to the table, Robert S. Pope, Dr. Robert S. Pope, is Director of the Co Cooperative Threat Reduction Defense Threat Reduction Agency in the Department of Defense. And Kevin, Dr. Kevin M. Esvelt is the Assistant Professor and Director Sculpting Evolution Group, Media Lab, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Welcome, gentlemen, both of you, and we'll start with Dr. Pope. All right, good morning. Thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, speak to the commission today. Uh, I lead the uh, Department of Defense's Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, and the mission of that program is to prevent the proliferation or use of weapons of mass destruction by working with partner nations to secure, eliminate, detect, or interdict WMD-related systems and materials, and to build the capacity of those partner nations to detect and report dangerous disease outbreaks at their source, reducing pandemic threats. About two-thirds of the CTR program's annual investment is in our biological threat reduction program. And this program protects the United States, its armed forces, and our allies from biological threats by strengthening the capabilities of our partner nations and the international community to prevent, detect, and prepare for outbreaks caused by high threat pathogens. Uh, the Biological Threat Reduction Program enhances biosafety and biosecurity at facilities that store and handle reference strains and improves the ability of the partner nations and their disease surveillance capabilities, which enables earlier 
outbreak reporting and response and reduces threat, whether it's natural, accidental, or a deliberate biological outbreak. Our BTRP program currently works with 31 partner nations in Europe and Eurasia, the Middle East and Central Asia, Africa, and the Indo-Pacific, while also conducting some regional and global efforts to improve biosafety, biosecurity, biosurveillance, and data sharing. So I'd like to offer three recommendations with a focus on this international cooperation. Uh, the first is the importance of bolstering foreign partner health security capacity to better detect, report, and contain these outbreaks at their source before they come to the United States or to our allies. So to do that, we want to work with partner countries to develop and sustain a biological risk management culture to help ensure the safe handling, transport, processing, and secure storage of biological samples. As partner countries have to manage endemic pathogens that are on the US biological select agent and toxins list, safe and secure handling practices are critical to reduce the risk of an accidental release or a theft of these pathogens that could be detrimental to US health security and economic interests. Additionally, the growing connectivity between information systems, the internet, and other infrastructure creates opportunities to disrupt communication to, to disease detection, diagnosis, and reporting. So we should work with partner countries to identify existing cybersecurity gaps in the health area and safeguard electronic human and animal health data, as well as internet-connected laboratory equipment and disease reporting capabilities to prevent nefarious intrusions or adjustments there. Security is one of our program's three pillars, and to this end, we endeavor to ensure a broad spectrum of security measures that are included with all of our engagements, including physical security, as well as addressing cybersecurity. Recommendation two, uh, supporting broad pathogen surveillance initiatives. You know, a robust biosurveillance capacity helps nip potential future pandemic-scale threats in the bud to whatever extent possible, or at least allows us a bit more time to try and alert the entities and organizations that are postured to respond to a future outbreak. So as a global health community, we need to ensure that effective, sustainable systems that monitor all potential threat areas are in place, producing reliable data that we can quickly act on. To responsibly support our partners and establish a reliable disease surveillance network, we should identify and implement technological solutions for disease detection diagnosis and reporting that are sustainable by very low resource countries. Rapid, accurate, and reliable diagnosis of emerging pathogens requires a technically competent, proficient workforce, as well as the equipment to work with. Reliance on new and emerging technologies is often rate limiting for partners from the standpoint of the cost of reagents, ability to maintain equipment, and the throughput in these advanced systems. We should also endeavor to support surveillance of a broad range of pathogens, which may have direct impact to human health, but also consider threat to animals and agriculture, including any second and third order effect to economies, trade, and the food supply. To aid in training, technical proficiency, establishing disease surveillance baselines, and supporting early detection network, there should be mechanisms in place to fund pathogen surveillance initiatives in low and middle income countries. And that's one thing that our program does, is to help understand the disease burdens and make sure these systems are ready to go. And then the final recommendation is committing to information resilience. And that's two parts. One is information sharing among partners. As we support these broad pathogen surveillance initiatives, 
we need cross-border sharing of that information so neighboring countries, regions, and the world understand what's coming. So it's required transparency, collaboration, and openness so that that information can be shared as well as any information on biosecurity or biosafety related incidents without impacting the country reporting. And then finally, we worry about misinformation and disinformation. As we work in the international environment, we've all seen the impacts of COVID misinformation and disinformation. And our program faces a deliberate attack by Russia and a disinformation narrative that aims to make all of this international cooperation in public health and animal health harder. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Pope. Uh, Dr. Esvel. Thank you for the opportunity to speak today. So I'm a biotechnologist and I specialize in engineering biological constructs and controlling them so that they do not spread indefinitely and exponentially in the wild. Now, we know that COVID has killed over a million Americans and we know that we are, or at least appear to be, unusually vulnerable to pandemics in ways that other nations are not necessarily. And I submit that this means that the risk of pandemics is a defense issue. Could we actually emerge victorious from a military conflict in the midst of a pandemic that primarily afflicts us and not our adversary. So I suggest that we need to view this as a defense issue and have more involvement from the, by the Department of Defense in addressing this issue, as only they have the resources to do so. Feynman said, what I cannot create, I do not understand. We seek to understand pathogens, pandemics, and to better learn to program biology we will learn how to cause new pandemics and worse. Today, 30,000 people or so can assemble an infectious influenza virus. We need to reduce access to those kinds of agents before instructions for making worse things become available. How can we do that? Number one, the Pandemic All Hazards Preparedness Act can include requirements for DNA synthesis screening. Right now, only nine out of 26 gene synthesis companies in the United States actually screen. Their screening methods they use can be readily penetrated. If we require screening of all institutions receiving federal funds to verify that screening is robust and up to date, because if a new pandemic class agent is identified, we need all of the screening systems to recognize that and look for it. We need to ensure that next-gen DNA synthesis and assembly devices that can go on a benchtop all screen robustly. And we need to require this even though it could be costly because it will be much less costly within the next year. The cryptographers who came up with the public key, private key encryption system that undergirds international finance have devised a cryptographic DNA synthesis screening system that will be made freely available in the next year. So requiring companies that do not currently screen to do so will not put our, company, our companies at a competitive disadvantage. The other thing that we can reform is the select agent list, which is also covered by PAPA. FSAP regulated pathogens are 10 times less likely to leak from labs than standard NIH funded BSL-3 and 4 research. Also, tier one agents require background checks of everyone working in the lab for security purposes. But FSAP currently doesn't cover lots of potential pandemic pathogens mentioned in the literature. It is very seldom updated, nor does it cover functional variants generated through mechanisms such as creating chimeras, mixing pieces of viruses, directed evolution, machine learning, ancestral protein reconstruction, or any of the other clever lists of biotechnologies that we can now employ. <clears throat> 
Next, large language models are going to make these things even more accessible. I asked in a class 10 non-scientists from MIT and Harvard to see what they could do within one hour when it came to identifying potential pandemic class threats that could be accessible to people like them. They managed to glean the identities of four high-risk potential pandemic pathogens, how to enhance H5N1 virus for greater transmissibility, how to enhance Nipah virus to infect human cells more effectively, a walkthrough of reverse genetics protocols allowing people to make these viruses from synthetic DNA, a warning that some companies screen orders for hazards, a list of the companies that do not screen orders for hazards, or at least are not members of the consortium that does, how to redesign genetic orders in order to evade screening, what equipment is needed for reverse genetics, and which contract research organizations could perform reverse genetics to create something such as an influenza virus. In order to deal with this, I recommend that we require records of all uses of these large language models. So that means you need to know what the queries are and what the responses are and have a record of that for accountability and an audit trail. And this form of control would allow the future use of safeguards. We also need the CROs and automated cloud labs that are purely robotic and can just be programmed by scientists to screen samples that are sent to them. We need to sequence them and screen them for hazards the same way we need to screen synthetic DNA. Last thing, many of my virologist colleagues still under siege. No one really trusts the government to set the regulations to be correctly. So I propose we let the market do it. If we require catastrophe liability and insurance, expanding liability for any event that causes over 100,000 American deaths inside of a year. This is a very tiny fraction of research that could ever do any such thing. And we just require general liability to cover this up to a cap with the government providing coverage of the remainder at the same market price. Then this would essentially take these negative externalities, the low probability, high risk catastrophic events, and bring the costs up front. If it still looks like the benefits are worth it, we should fund that research. If not, we shouldn't otherwise. But broadly, if my vehicle could be carjacked and used to cause trillions of dollars in damages, I shouldn't be allowed to drive it. Unless, of course, my driving it is so beneficial that I can buy insurance. Thank you very much for your service. Thank you. <clears throat> still an optimist, friend. <laughs> so uh, th thank you both for your, um, for your very expert testimony. Um, uh, my question for you, Dr. Pope, is when you talk about um, working with um, uh, foreign partners around the world, um, my question is, uh, with regard to the three items that you outlined, is there a, a, a model protocol to do that? In other words, if company, country X says, we want to do exactly what you want us to do, you hand them this and say, that's what you, needs to be done. I mean, is, it, is, is, is all this laid out in the protocol that um, whether they are capable or not is, is, is clear, is very clear as exactly what they should do? Some of it is laid out. I'll, you know, I, I would say the, the World Health Organization's international health regulations give a, a very standard as to how countries need to report disease outbreaks, the standards for safety and security in different kinds of biosafety laboratory facilities is well laid out in terms of, of how those need to be arrayed, staffed, and, and what kinds of pathogens can be worked in the various levels. So some of the basics are there. But we often find, particularly working with our lower resource countries, that they may know these things, but they just don't have a path to get there, whether they don't have the resources, they don't have the local experts, and, and need external assistance to be able to come in and, and make sure they have the right legislation, the right regulations, the right facilities, and the right trained staff to be able to do what the international health regulations requires them to do. 
And how many countries around the world do you, would you say are up to speed on those things? Ooh. Uh, I'm not going to try to give a number on that. Uh, I will say that the, the Nuclear Threat Initiative uh, group and their annual index uh, gives, a, I think, a pretty good laydown of quantitative scores that they think countries are meeting in terms of biosafety, biosecurity, and, and disease surveillance. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Dr. Esfault, the two, two terms that you use that, frankly, I'm not um, knowledgeable enough to really understand, so I wonder if you just go into a little more detail what you mean by screening um, as you use it, and also large language, what, what, those, what you mean by those two terms. So by screening, I mean the use of algorithms to detect in a DNA sequence whether or not that sequence encodes likely hazards. For example, components of pandemic viruses, select agents, and similar sequences that could be used to cause mass harm. The trick and what would they be, and, and, and where would be the source of those um, items that they would be screening for those genetic variations? So right now, there are guidelines that HHS produces for what kinds of things should be screened for. It certainly includes all the select agents and recommends a few others. But it's mostly industry-led. That is, the industry requirements to join the International Gene Synthesis Consortium are more stringent than anything the government recommends. And again, it is only a, a recommendation. So if you speak with the heads of industry and they've really been taking the lead and taking a hit to their bottom lines in order to do the right thing, they would actually welcome increased regula regulatory requirements and a greater government role in defining what needs to be screened for. Now, we need to be cautious here because if we begin screening for something that because we believe it could cause a pandemic, for example, we're increasing the credibility of that as a threat, which means that insofar as screening is incomplete, we might actually inadvertently induce adversaries to attempt to make and release that agent. So ideally, what we want to do is be able to screen orders for hazards without learning anything about what else is in the order. That is, we only want to learn if there is a hazard, and otherwise we want to learn nothing about the order. And we want to be able to screen for a list of hazards that ideally doesn't need to be publicly disclosed. And so this is where the cryptography aspect comes in. This is something that this is a solvable problem from a cryptographic perspective. And that will protect the privacy of the customer's orders, because if you give me the DNA synthesis orders of a biotech startup or even a major pharmaceutical, I can tell you what it is that they're attempting to do. So that absolutely must be kept private. And similarly, we don't want to disclose what we find most threatening as future advances make increasingly more harmful constructs potentially accessible. So that's the screening side, the large language models. So here I'm speaking of things like GPT-4 and the other artificial intelligence chatbots and, and other tools that can are derived from them. So these are essentially systems that are use natural language processing to predict the next words in a sequence, paragraph, paper, et cetera. So they allow an individual without much training or even with a lot of training to quickly grasp the essentials of a topic simply by asking it questions and observing the answers. And while these systems are currently tuned to try to recognize when someone is asking for something that would be illegal or harmful, they're extremely imperfect. It's pretty trivial to currently jailbreak these systems so that they will, in fact, answer harmful questions. In fact, there's some evidence that if the more you train it to be good, 
if you can jailbreak it and flip it to be evil, it's actually better at answering questions that would be harmful than if you hadn't trained it in that way. So this is an unsolved problem. The only reliable way to solve it would probably be to train these systems on data sets that don't have the hazardous material, conceptually. That's an extreme step, but we can also imagine training some of these models to screen the prompts that are submitted and the outputs for potential things that are hazardous. And again, this is an automated method of doing that. And one of the more recent advances um, called constitutional AI actually uses one system to screen the outputs of the other system and then trains the first one. And the second one says, is this hazardous? Could this be misused? Is this ethical? And then the first one takes that response and updates it, its own answer, so as to be more ethical, less hazardous, et cetera. But if we don't have some kind of control over these systems, there is no way that we can require any of these safeguards to be used. That is, if the model becomes what's called open sourced, then anyone can just run it on their computer with no restrictions whatsoever. So if we had some kind of reporting requirements, then that would effectively ensure that anyone working with this, these models or producing a new model would need to keep this log, and so they could not just freely share it. They could allow everyone to use it through what's called an, an API, an application programming interface, and allow others to innovate on it. This is what OpenAI currently does with GPT-4 and their other models. So this is a viable way where the technology can still be made available to the public, but in a way that does at least limit its ability to cause hazards. And right now we're risking proliferation of increasingly powerful open source models that can answer these kinds of dangerous questions. So this is the sort of thing that's really just taken the world by storm in the last couple of months. Yeah. And we have an opportunity to do something about it soon. Is it your contention that these recommendations can be um, accomplished within the, within the body of PAPA? I do not think that PAPA is particularly well suited to large language model regulation. I mean, it obviously touches on much more than just biology. I haven't done it, but I imagine but you it could is, ask. It has to be done legislatively. Ultimately, it probably has to be done legislatively. You can do it with an executive order. It would certainly be challenged in the courts. I think Congress will ultimately need to act. Thank you very much. Dr. Shavilla. Um, it sounds, uh, let me see if I understand what you're saying. You're talking about reconceptualizing the regulatory framework for national security reasons. Around biotechnology and its potential yes. misuse. Right. Yes. And um, and you're also talking about a role for the possible role for the private sector to drive this using the insurance model. Is that what you're saying? That's one potential way to allow outside expertise to determine what is and is not potentially catastrophically hazardous. Yeah, and that would work for a, for the private research universities, for example. Sure. But I don't know whether it'd work for the publics because they've got sovereign immunity. I mean, they don't use an insurance model. So to some extent they do, but the state universities, for example, obtain insurance from the state itself, typically. Well, that they're self-insured, basically. They're, they're basically self-insured backed by the state. Right. But it's worth noting that the typical mid-sized state would be bankrupted several times over by just the wrongful death claims if something like COVID were to be shown to have leaked from a laboratory. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I don't think most governors are quite aware of, that under existing law, this liability probably exists, 
but it's not clear that it necessarily does. But there's a cutoff on that liability in terms of pain and suffering, and uh, that's they have sovereign immunity, so it would be a relatively, they wouldn't be bankrupt. Well, under their because they deal with this kind of thing all the time in their medical schools and other. They do, but their but the existing caps are to individual suits, and if there was an individual long, wrongful death suit from a hundred thousand different people, then well, the multiplication. And it might be a class action. It's unclear whether it would be converted to a class action or not. It depends on standing, I guess. And um, I don't, uh, Dr. Pope, I don't understand how other countries are going to have the sustained resources to put the systems in place to pay the individuals to keep retraining people. Yes, and that's, that's a constant challenge we find when working in the low-resource countries. And the way we try to do this is you know, looking at infrastructure that is as economically sustainable as possible, not building the, the Cadillac when the, the escort will do, uh, not only training the people that are going to run the physical infrastructure of the lab and, and do the scientific testing, but find ways to institutionalize that. So if we're working with a public health laboratory, we're trying to find a way to get those courses put into a medical school. If we're working with a veterinary laboratory, we're trying to get those courses put into a veterinary school. So once we are done doing the training, there's still an institution in the local country that has that curriculum and continues to train. But it's the reporting of incidents that may be uh, as expensive a piece if you're going to have relatively high-level people to do that. It can be. I mean, we're, we're finding typically in our partner countries the uh, Public health folks are paid a, a competitive wage in their countries. The veterinary side is, is typically less well-resourced, but there are qualified and interested people that work at the laboratory benches. So that has not been the hard part. The, the harder part is sustaining the infrastructure, typically. Have, have you looked at the uh, model that the Skoll Foundation Ending Epidemics uh, created, which basically uses crowdsourcing and volunteers that are trained? in a country? Uh, no, ma'am, I'm not familiar with that you one. You might look. Okay. Thank you. Senator Daschle, your questions? Well, first of all, let me thank both of you for excellent presentations, very enlightening. I, Dr. Pope, I, I'd like to drill down, if I could, a little bit on the three categories where you think work is necessary, partnership, surveillance, and information sharing, and dealing with mis- and disinformation. I guess I've been under the assumption over the last many years that we are doing um, work in those three areas. And what I would love is if you could give us greater clarity on the degree to which we're doing those things and where the omissions lie? Where, where are the deficiencies in the three areas? Because it, it seems to me that's really what, what we've been trying to do now for some time. And I guess I just don't know what the difference is between what we're doing and what you think we should be doing. And mm -hmm. if you could clarify that a little bit, that'd be great. Yeah. And, and I, I think collectively we are doing a lot of this uh, between our program at the Defense Department, what CDC does overseas, what USAID is doing overseas, as well as some other programs and some of our ally and partner programs that are out there as well. All, the, the programs tend to be 
somewhat independent of one another. We, we do our best job as an interagency of, of keeping track of what each other is doing in their focus areas. Our program in the Defense Department is, is focused on this safe and secure surveillance of diseases on the select agent and toxins list. Uh, USAID may be more focused on HIV or other things of that nature, tuberculosis, malaria. Uh, CDC tends to take a strong research focus when they go in more than capacity building most of the time. So these things are happening, uh, but I don't know that there is a top-down priority of where this needs to be and whether we're going fast enough to get ahead of the next pandemic. You know, my program is involved in about 30 countries right now. We've got a list of 30 or 40 more that we're going to start assessing that we expect are, are going to need capacity building uplift to be able to do this basic disease detection and reporting before something crosses one of their borders. So yes, we're doing it, but I don't know that we're necessarily doing enough of it fast enough given that we've seen the, the broad global impact of, of even a relatively mild pandemic like COVID turned out to be. And is it just a function of too much siloing? That is each country doing their own thing and not, a, or is it more a need of resources? What would you characterize as the primary issue involving our deficiencies in these three areas? I don't know that there's one primary issue. I mean, we have some countries that treat disease outbreaks as an economic or national security secret and are, are reticent to share that kind of information before the, the pandemic starts to get out of control. We have others that very much desire to do this and don't have the resources or the training and simply need a partner to help them with that uplift. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Pope. I, Dr. Esfeld, I am, I am um, generally like Fred, an optimist, but I have to say I'm incredibly concerned about where AI is going to take us over the next generation. Um, obviously, we all know the good things that are potentially there, especially in medical research. But I must say, I think the potential for destructive capacity is beyond maybe even our imagination. And I'm intrigued with the regulatory approach that you suggest, but I just can't imagine uh, first of all, I don't think a domestic regulatory framework is adequate because there are too many other international players. And frankly, if we can't get our act together on climate, if we can't get our act together on trade, I can't imagine how we're going to get our act together on AI. And so give me some reason for optimism here that <laughs> we, can, we can find a way globally to address uh, uh, what I think is just an enormous challenge um, and, and even if there, and I, if, if I could add one more layer of concern, even if there was a global regulatory framework, we still have the dark web and we still have those who play at another level that has nothing to do with uh, regulation and, and do it very successfully. So um, what do we do about that? That's a great question. I also consider myself an optimist despite my remarks. I think on AI, the, the number one thing to recognize is that so far what's called the scaling hypothesis has held true. That is, the larger the model, the more da training data you feed it, the more parameters in the model, the more powerful it seems to become. And it's worth noting that we are now in the lead with respect to all of the leading models. That is, the United States has a very commanding lead 
today. Now, do we need to be concerned about competition from China? Yes, absolutely. But it is not clear to me that reporting requirements are going to slow down the development of these kinds of large models by industry. Instead, it would seem to secure their potential to profit from these models by offering them as a service, as a key component of services offered by other firms through the API system that they're currently using. The report requirements would primarily just apply to open sourcing of those models. Is it going to last forever? No, but the safeguards research on how to make these models safer is advancing very rapidly and AI has tremendous potential to advance technologies that favor defense as well. And in the long run, AI I think could help us keep a lid on and potentially even reliably stop the spread of infectious disease, which in the long run has to be our goal. That is everything I've said, eventually we will learn to make pandemics. Eventually some combination of AI and widely accessible biotools, the expanding bioeconomy, the number of people who have these things is going to make it reasonably widely accessible, even if we do all of the, all of the things that I suggested. But we can, I think, within 10 years, ensure that a pandemic cannot spread effectively within the American population through a combination of better ventilation, through indoor germicidal lights that don't harm multicellular organisms like us, but still eliminate pathogens from the air at high intensities, should be able to block just about everything. And AI could prove the key to accelerating the development and deployment of those kinds of technologies. So we can't just stop the technology. We are, the best we can do is try to nudge it down the paths that tend to favor defense. And so I think my suggestions are geared towards buying time to figure out how to make these systems safer. Right now, everything's just this pell-mell rush forwards to the point where even, I mean, I am not a developer of AI myself. My lab uses machine learning for protein design and the like. But we don't do large language models other than as users but they're already helpful to us. And eventually they will potentially be able to replace us. And then you will have many, many more scientists and engineers making many, many, many more advances. And if those scientists and engineers are more thoughtful, wiser, perhaps more ethical than we are, can think ahead to the consequences before they disclose, then we could have a far more secure and flourishing future than if humans who are governed by our own incentives to publish above all else, at least in academia, are simply throwing everything out there because we're motivated by solving the puzzle. And we don't think about the consequences because we all survived a gauntlet in which we have to spend at least five years of our lives focused intently and narrowly on one thing, which tends to select against folks who think about the wider repercussions. I think AI is, our, is the way out eventually, but we have to try to nudge things down the defense-focused avenue of the tech tree. And I'm rambling, so I'm going to stop there. <laughs> no, no, it's, that's a, basically, as I understand your answer, it's, it's creating good AI to fight bad AI. In the long run, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Orin Congressman Upton. Orin, a light comment just so that we can make Clorox so that we don't, we don't die. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, thank you very much uh, for your 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 great work. And I 
Dr. Pope, as, as I think about your testimony, the elephant in the room right now, Russia, Ukraine, uh, and as we, we think about China, I mean, with WHO being really prevented uh, from going in and the FDA and others uh, to really examine uh, what was going on in Wuhan, uh, which raised uh, all the appropriate suspicions. So how do we deal with that? I mean, you, you laid out a very good agenda in terms of wh what we ought to be doing to share to protect the world. Mm -hmm. But when we have two <laughs> large countries that ought to be, you know, superpowers with us, uh, not being players on this, I mean, uh, you can't operate. You, 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 can't, you can't get to a conclusion without embracing players like them and, and, and getting, you know, the, these other issues uh, resolved. So what's, <laughs> I want you to be an optimist too, something that all of us have talked about, but getting more pessimistic as the, mm -hmm. the morning goes on. So what are your thoughts as it relates to that? Yeah, ultimately, we're all safer when all of countries are cooperating together to share this disease detection and surveillance. And while I'm currently relatively pessimistic on Russia, uh, looking back at the, the history of our 30-some-year-old non-Luger Cooperative Threat Reduction Program, Russia was our first partner and continued to be a partner up until about 2013. So it's it's not impossible to partner with Russia. It's, it's and you think about all these other things. I mean, uh, again, a story today about the Arctic. Mm -hmm. um, you think about NASA. I mean, you think of all these different things where we've made progress really since Richard Nixon and all of a sudden it's 50 years is it's mm -hmm. just gone yeah I, I i am optimistic that the the situation with russia and china are in neither case is permanent we, we've partnered with both of these countries in the past and you know i think as a nation we need to continue to look for you know sensible partnering opportunities in the future while you know, being cognizant of national and international security and until such time as those opportunities present themselves, it's important to be partnering with the countries that neighbor these competitors, these adversaries, because if there's going to be an outbreak in China or Russia that they're unwilling to tell us about, we may spot it in Thailand or in Ukraine or in a partner country that does see that first cross-border transmission. Yeah. Dr. Esfal, I want to drill down a little bit. I, you know, as, as we went through this COVID experience, and we saw funding. I mean, not only did we help, were helped with cures, but also going back to the Problem Solvers Caucus, we had a real play in, in terms of getting substantial money uh, that President Trump signed into law, uh, allowing for the Radix program. Uh, real incentives, uh, in essence, promoted by the NIH uh, to allow the pri private sector to help us develop devices that would be able to uh, identify someone with COVID, uh, allowing them to, you know, literally, I, I worked with a company that was looking at a device with a saliva test could determine whether or not they had been exposed or not. Uh, and the idea had it worked, but they had supply chain issues with China. Uh, getting the right strip, I'll call it a strip, to identify it where an individual could get tested in the morning and be able to show that whether they're going to a sporting event or if they went to work or, you know, what taking the kids to school, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, it, it didn't pass the test. 
but the RADx program was really a, a, a wonderful thing. So do we need, as you think about your cryptograph devices, is that the type of thing that you're thinking of where, where someone will actually have a device that could be able to detect then with algorithms or DNA uh, that they may be uh, susceptible to some new disease that we don't know anything or pandemic that we don't know today? I mean, is that the type of thing that we need? Uh, pardon. So I think those are those are two separate issues, and I, and I think yeah, we so very much need both. What, yeah. So for the DNA synthesis screening, the goal is to ensure that when we make synthetic DNA of a desired sequence, we want to ensure that we know when anyone is making something that is hazardous, and that if they don't have permission, then ideally the company or the device sitting on their benchtop just refuses to make it until it's given that permission. And we have the technology to essentially prove permissions through cryptography and the like. And we have ways of screening orders without disclosing what's in the order or what it is that we're afraid of, again, using cryptography. So that is focused on the technology itself. And that is one where it, our influence really does extend internationally. And I think to touch on the earlier question, I think this is one where we can, in fact, cooperate with China, because they also have no interest in seeing pandemics become accessible to many, many non-state actors. So here, if the US and EU and China, or even two out of three, mandate some form of screening, we are the largest markets by far. And if we mandate screening for every institution that receives federal funding, a lot of folks buy DNA from foreign firms. We make a lot of the DNA synthesis devices, including having the startups that do the next gen methods of making DNA. So that would cover the bulk of the world right there and then everything else could be mopped up through diplomatic pressure. So I'm pretty optimistic that this is a very solvable problem. And if we do manage to institute that kind of universal screening and secure screening, so you can't just, you know, you can't have a troll on the internet write a script and say, hey, use this, and it'll redesign your DNA order to trivially bypass all the screening. That's not OK. But if we can solve this, we can reduce access by at least a factor of 100, if not potentially a 1,000-fold. So that would make us a lot safer, and it would make it a lot make us less vulnerable to potential state actors using covert actions to essentially frame a non-state actor and, and have them take the blame. What you're describing is rapid diagnostics that are geared to determine whether someone has been exposed and is currently infected. And that is something that we also absolutely need in order to essentially learn how to best control a pandemic. Bluntly, we probably can't do that right now. That is, even if we had perfect detection that would tell as soon as any of your cells had been infected, we would probably still struggle to use that information due to privacy concerns and honestly due to disinformation and broad mistrust. So I think the best way to deal with this problem is to ensure that it doesn't happen in the first place. And if it must, and if we must attempt to deal with it once it has happened, then we need better protective equipment, and we need better indoor pathogen clearing mechanisms. But we also need to know exactly where has it spread so that we can essentially allow public health to do what they can to curtail it. Thank you. Senator Lieberman. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, uh, Congressman Greenwood. I begin, as I was told long ago, I should never do by with an apology. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
I'm late. Uh, it was totally the fault of two great American airlines. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now I understand what President Biden was talking about yesterday. And uh, I'm, I'm planning to seek compensation. <laughs> but the problem is I don't know how to value all that I've missed thus far <laughs> in this meeting. It's beyond valuation. So I, I thank you. I'm going to, uh, uh, at the risk of repeating, I'm just going to say a few words generally and then ask the both of you. I apologize particularly to the two of you and to Fred Upton. Uh, as to a couple of questions in doing this, I, what comes to mind is an iconic Capitol Hill comment by former Congressman Mo Udall of Arizona. Uh, in his freshman year, he participated in a press conference on a legislative initiative. He was the last uh, speaker of 15. And uh, as befit his uh, seniority, or none of it, and he uh, began by saying everything that could possibly be said about this subject has already been said, but not everyone has said it. <laughs> so he proceeded to say he would say it again. Anyway, with, with apologies if I do that, I, I just want to uh, thank our staff, Dr. George and others, and my colleagues on the commission. Uh, as they have undoubtedly said, we are in the process of updating our uh, 2015 foundational blueprint, blueprint report which was really quite, <laughs> in a moment I will make clear this is not self-congratulation, prophetic about the coming of a, a pandemic, not because we're prophets, but because um, we, we asked the experts. Uh, unfortunately, not much was done uh, to get ready for it, as we know, so we're back with the ex experts, hopefully having had the experience that uh, we've all had um, we will not fall back into what um, Dr. Julie Gerberding recently called, I thought it was beautiful, into our baseline complacency. We really can't afford it. So that's what, that's what uh, these hearings are about, and we'll be issuing what we're calling Blueprint 2.0, as you probably know. Um, when, um, uh, and incidentally, uh, to say the obvious, I apologize again if this has been said, so uh, uh, this is uh, May 9th, uh, May 11th, if I'm correct, uh, the uh, state of the health emergency um, that resulted from COVID-19 in the U.S. ends. Uh, and the World Health Organization has now ended the uh, global health emergency from COVID-19. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we know enough, well, just the, the press the last several days a story that at a briefing at the White House, several experts uh, told officials at the White House that there was a, at least a 20% chance in the next two years that there would be an, an Omicron-type uh, variant-type outbreak here in the U.S. So I think what we're doing is important. Hopefully, we can sound an alarm, and, and um, the, the good efforts that have been made in response to COVID will be repeated. When this commission was formed, um, we on the commission and the uh, uh, sort of initiator, Bob Cadlick, uh, uh, said we, we had two main areas to focus on. One was infectious disease pandemics, 
uh, it was actually three. The other was accidental releases from laboratories, um, all under the category of biodefense. But the third was uh, fear of bioterrorist attack or, or bioweapons uh, attacked by uh, nations, not just terrorists. And um, that's what I certainly, and I think Tom, Tom Ridge too, thought was the priority and more likely to happen. Um, but so, uh, and just asking two questions before I do, I want to say that I think it's really important, having been through the trauma of a pandemic, uh, that, that we not forget that the threat of biological attack is quite real. Um, so, um, and here I'm happy to accept summary answers from the two of you if you've already been over this ground. But my, my questions that I, I had hoped to ask um, you uh, uh, both, and Dr. Pope particularly because of your work at uh, C on CTR at, at the uh, Defense Department, is how would you assess the current state of the bioweapons attack? Has it grown, well, let's just say in the last uh, eight years since we did that foundational report, there was a State Department report which suggested that, um, our, that there were serious bioweapons threats from uh, Russia, and I, I, I forgot, maybe North Korea or Iran. North Korea, it was interesting. And uh, probably threats from China and Iran, but at a slightly lower level. So I'm interested in uh, what your assessment of the nature of the threat is now and um, what, what, what we should do about it. Yeah, thank you, Senator. I think the, the threat in general from weapons of mass destruction to include biological threats has increased with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. I'll, you know, we've seen for years that uh, countries like Russia with their attack on the Skripals, their, their attack on, on Mr. Navalny, uh, the North Korean attack on, on a member of, of the, the ruling family. Right. You know, norms are eroding, at least on small scale, WMD use, and as we watch Russia losing their really conventional options in Ukraine. We continue to worry about their turning to chemical, biological, or nuclear weapon on the battlefield. Uh, particularly with something biological or chemical, it gives them the ability to try to evade attribution and uh, pitch it as a false flag or uh, deny it in some way. So we are worried, you know, I personally worried, not so much a broad battlefield use in the Cold War sense, but smaller scale options that, that may be in some way deniable. And, and I think your panel later today talking about attribution is an important part of the deterrence against that. Can I interrupt there? I, th sure. I think that's a very important testimony, um, which is that the, the threat has gone up because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the fact that Russia is not doing well. When um, the public dialogue, at least, and even the threats from uh, Putin or others in the Russian government, uh, they, they tend to focus on the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. But I take it <clears throat> from what you've said that it, if they go that way, if they go to a, a, a weapons of mass destruction uh, response because other, other, uh, uh, other offenses are, uh, are not working, that it's as likely that it will be um, biological or chemical, maybe more likely 
um, because of what you said about the difficulty of attribution. Yeah, I mean, we know they have active programs in all three disciplines, right. and you know, the the U.S. intelligence community is doing what it can to to keep track of all of that. But I, I think we we continue to try to debate what the Russian decision calculus would be you know, exactly when they feel like a, a national interest is at stake, where they need to go above the conventional threshold. But right. you know, I think biological and chemical are very much on the table as well as low yield nuclear. Well, that's important. So. Um, uh, speak a little bit for, about your assessment of the programs in China and Iran. Yeah, I know much less about those programs. Okay. I'll, you know, I think, generally speaking, Iranian malign behavior around the Middle East and their desire to work through proxies in places like uh, Lebanon and Syria and Iraq gives us concern that they would give a non-conventional weapon to their partners. You know, fortunately, they have not done that yet, in, you know, given many years of conflict in Yemen, Syria, and other places. But we do continue to worry, again, that if, if Iranian vital interests are threatened, they might see an attractive opportunity to try to use a deniable chemical or biological weapon. Uh, China is a vast and growing research and development empire right. vastly growing the size of their military. So I, I think that that one stands watching uh, in terms of, of the situation in the Pacific. I think we worry more about anti-access uh, if the military ever needed to come in to deter or, or fight in a Taiwan scenario. You know, we rely on partner nation basing and those kinds of basing can be difficult to access or use if they were attacked with a chemical or biological weapon, denying that base to the U.S. and to the partner yeah. nation. So it's a real uh, threat, the, the biological weapon part of it, uh -huh. from uh, at least both the two uh, great powers, China particularly and Russia, who are challenging us increasingly, but also from the uh, Iranians and North Koreans, who are the two sort of fanatical Rogue, rogue nations. What's your assessment? We, we asked when, when we focused on this on this commission, um, the, worried about what um, uh, terrorist groups, non-state actors, might be doing because it gets in, uh, because of the, the uh, spread of biological knowledge and, and capabilities and the ease of accessing uh, it and implementing a building that that. Uh, uh, terrorist, non-state actor terrorist groups might have a capability, uh, for, I'm sorry, for biological weapons. Yeah. Yeah, uh, what's your assessment of that? Uh, I, I think that threshold of access has lowered as well. Uh, and again, in terms of international norms, which violent extremists don't care as much about as, as state actors, but we've already seen ISIS cross the chemical weapons threshold in northern Iraq. And given the the easy access of knowledge about pathogens and some of the things that uh, Dr. Esfeld has talked about in terms of access of, of pathogen strains or DNA portions of strains right. without a lot of regulation or, or security right now, I, I do think it's, it's still a real risk that a non-state actor could also choose to go the biological route. So um, if our commission in our um, sort of upgrade or, or updating of our foundational report wants to be constructive on this question of um, uh, preventing and uh, 
or deterring um, the use of biological weapons by nations or non-state actors. Um, what suggestions do you have for us about what we can recommend uh, either to Congress or uh, the executive branch? Yeah, within my area of expertise, I, I think we gain a lot by continuing to increase uh, effective biosurveillance out in the world, you know, trying to catch these things forward in the places where violent extremists operate, where they fundraise, uh, around the borders of these threatening nation states where we may catch some early intent of a, a low-scale use or a, a testing gone wrong that perhaps right. we get a signature on. So you know, getting beyond the testing for public health diseases that we know are public health threats and doing broader biosurveillance of areas of types of pathogens, families of pathogens that may be weaponizable so we can catch that early signature of something before you know, this outbreak, if it's deliberate, can take hold. Okay, thanks, that's helpful. I've taken a lot of time, but Dr. Esfield, I do want to just ask you to build on that. Based on your own work in this area, uh, do you have any suggestions for the commission about what we might uh, include in our coming report uh, to be, uh, I'm thinking particularly about trying to prevent or deter uh, the development or use of uh, biological weapons against us or our allies, of course. So uh, I would defer to Dr. Pope on with respect to nation state actors, which is yeah. out, typically outside my level of expertise. I tend to focus on pandemic class agents, and I think that that is not completely new. In fact, when the, since the first polio virus was made synthetically, there was there were immediate alarms from members of Congress regarding its potential for bioterrorism. And they were prescient, but they were very premature. There was no real risk of polio being used as a terrorist agent. And unfortunately, by the time it became widely accessible, then it became an instance of boy crying wolf in a way. And the scientific community just didn't want to hear about it and associated security concerns, I would say, with the TSA and taking off your shoes. Mm -hmm. So today, I think we face a substantially increased risk of non-state actor-caused pandemics from terrorist groups, largely due to the access phenomenon. DNA, synthetic DNA is much cheaper and much more accessible, and there are many more step-by-step -step protocols for assembling infectious samples of viruses from a genome sequence. And again, we always share the complete genome sequence of even viruses that we think can cause pandemics, because researchers, of course, are well-meaning and want everyone to be able to take a crack at developing better defenses. But if you give all of your well-meaning researchers the ability to access the thing, you give all of the skilled non-state actors that ability. The one reason for optimism, there's been so few attempts at biological attacks by non-state actors. But we do have to go back to Aum Shinrikyo, and C.H.E. Endo, the head of their bioweapons program, was a graduate-trained virologist from Kyoto University. And today there is no doubt that someone with an educational background like that could have, I would suggest, make them five most likely pathogens that are most likely to cause pandemics. Not saying that that likelihood is particularly high for any one of them, but that suggests a baseline 2% chance per year because we've only had recombinant DNA for 50 years. So even one guy gives you a reasonably high risk. So I think what we should do about it briefly is DNA synthesis screening because IOM was unusually concerned about disclosure, right? They ended up attempting for anthrax, 
But rather than just requesting the strain that was virulent, they came up with this scheme to grab two different avirulent strains and then conjugate them to recreate the virulent strain because they were so worried about detection. If we had something close to universal DNA synthesis screening that allowed well-meaning researchers who have permission to order the DNA and obtain it without any delays, but would automatically notify you know, the lead investigator, the head biosafety officer at their institution, and the Office of General Counsel at their institution whenever a hazard order is placed, saying, your researchers have permission to make this. By the way, they just ordered it, just so you know. I think that could be a very powerful deterrent against groups like Aum. So I think DNA synthesis screening is the number one thing that I would focus on. Okay, that's really helpful yeah, testimony. It's also obviously a bit jarring because we're faced with a challenge, but, but that's why we're here, and I thank you very much. What I do want to say, uh, just picking up on your reference to TSA, the one positive experience I had today uh, <laughs> is that I enjoyed a, a bonus for aging, which is I didn't have to take my shoes off. <laughs> okay, Mr. Chairman. Was it you just couldn't reach them? No. <laughs> why, why are you encouraging? <laughs> uh, uh, Dr. Koresh, do you have a question for this panel? Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, I did actually have to take my boots off this morning, and I'm I fall in that age group too, but they were not so kind. Um, thank you both. Um, for your presentations and great, great responses to the, the questions so far. Um, if I don't make it really clear, um, please step in. But we really want to focus um, into some of the recommendations you've made, but you can reiterate those, but kind of give us some guidance of where to go so we can come up with um, good recommendations too, particularly at the, at the federal level. Um, so maybe I'll combine it, but they're really targeted to you a little uh, differently. I think, Dr. Pope, um, it was interesting to watch your body language as you spoke um, because you seem so comfortable um, with a lot of your program there. And I'm familiar with the BTRP program, um, but I think you kind of understate, um, but correct me if I'm wrong. Um, that you're just your standard operating procedures of reducing risk in your international programs. There's a lot of people very nervous about supporting uh, work overseas in laboratories or anything to do with bio and, and think of all the, a lot of fears and risk about what could go wrong. Um, but I don't think they understand, you know, that you limit uh, work with live viruses, you insist on laboratory assessments prior to even granting funding. And I don't see that in other federal agencies. Um, and I've worked with a lot of different agencies about how they implement, but you kind of do it without talking about it and it's very casual and it's just the way you do it. Um, so I think one is how can we spread that approach across government? And I know you, you government agencies like to be polite with each other and not you know, demand those kind of um, standardizations. But are they, do you, could you make some recommendations of how that approach, which is risk reduction, mm -hmm. um, can be applied more widely across government? Um, and I think that kind of leads into my second part, and maybe that's uh, you, Dr. Esfeld, um, which is that risk reduction, and you know, we know the human perception of risk. 
it's kind of different than statisticians and scientists think about risk. Um, so that the 80-20 rule, I think both of you are kind of saying, well, can we reduce some risk, you know, for low cost, lower effort, you probably knock off 80% of the risk, which is a no regrets kind of a policy. Um, but I think, you know, this new talk with LLMs and AI has gotten everybody worried about that, and we've kind of forgotten about the biological risk and gain of function. That used to be the big boogeyman last year. Now we kind of diverted our risk attention to the new scary thing, which is how most people determine risk, what's newest, that's the scariest. Um, so I think, Dr. Esfel, if you could get into some of that about CRISPR-Cas9, because you've worked in that area, and gain of function, and do we need tighter definitions of that? Do we, you know, what can we be moving forward? Um, and kind of put a risk perspective. So hopefully that fits, makes sense to both of you. No, thanks, Dr. Koresh. And, and, excuse and, me. <clears throat> Before you enter, I just want to alert the ex officios. We have some extra time, so if you have others of you will be have an opportunity to ask questions too. All right. Thank you. I appreciate your knowledge of our program and, and noting the safety approach we try to take to the biosurveillance work, the biosurveillance studies we do. I'll, you know, starting from working with, with our partners where we can to try to get rid of reference strains and move more things into to the cloud and, and do genomic sequencing, being able to work with inactivated uh, materials wherever possible so we're not having to do work in a high containment laboratory, uh, teaching safe procedures to the field epidemiologists that are collecting the samples and, and collecting the data associated with potential outbreaks. You know, all, all of that is, is trying to reduce risk because we don't want the biosurveillance itself to create the problem. So I think from what we do, you know, very important that risk reduction is considered throughout what we're doing, whether it's, it's the epidemiology work, the laboratory work, the surveillance studies that figure out what's endemically circulating around our partner countries so we can detect that signal in the noise that something has changed. And, and all of that can be done very safely. Uh, I don't want to speak outside of my lane in other areas of the government where they have to do research for vaccines, therapeutics, that sort of thing. There, there may well be things that have to be done with live agent in that case to be able to test the efficacy of the vaccine or the therapeutic. But for the kind of work we do in disease surveillance, we don't need to do that. All right, thank you, Dr. Kresh. The, to your point about LLMs being the new big bad, it's obvious that they do pose major risks of misinformation, mistrust, potential election issues and the like. That's the one that everyone agrees on and then the people are very concerned in the long run about displacing human economic activity and the like. Sure, well, they, AIs take our jobs. But when it comes to causing direct harm to life and limb, there's other than some sketchy things about, oh, superintelligence will make diamondoid bacteria that will eat everything. The real risk is that the AIs will make tools from biotechnology widely available that could be used to cause mass harm because they spread from person to person. That's just the immediate practical risk, that these tools will allow many humans who could not previously cause pandemic class events to do so. And I think that that is actually a good risk and regulatory handle on these systems, along with their potential to give detailed instructions on, say, how to enrich fissile materials and the like, which I'm sure folks are 
discussing in other venues such as this. I think that that is in fact the way to get a handle on how to regulate the LLMs for their potential to democratize weapons of mass destruction. On what else we should be doing in terms of gain of function, I hate the term because I'm a bioengineer. When we engineer biology, we are engineering it to do something that it wasn't doing before. Therefore, it is gaining some function. Everything we do is gain of function. So I prefer to focus on, and, and then what's more, we focus solely on these, well, what if, are you enhancing the transmission of a virus? Well, who cares where the thing came from? The point is, does it cause a pandemic or not? That is, research to identify pandemic-capable animal viruses in nature you take those back to the lab, you characterize them, you say, hey, this thing is very likely to cause a pandemic. Someone makes it, or it escapes in a lab leak. The people who die aren't gonna care that we didn't tinker with it to enhance its transmissibility. They're still dead. So I think we focus too much on did we enhance it. I think we need to use much more precise language and say, are we credibly identifying a pandemic capable pathogen? Because if we are, and we share the genome sequence, then there's usually some exceptionally detailed step-by-step -step protocols that would allow anyone with the relevant laboratory skills and expertise to acquire it. Again, given the synthetic DNA, which is why getting a handle on the synthesis screening is important, but also reforming the select agent program will help secure all of the existing materials. And that's the last point that I think is, is hard. You mentioned CRISPR. Even if we wanted to regulate CRISPR, just about every biotech lab in the world already has many different versions in our freezers. You, even if we came up with some horrific way to use CRISPR, there's just no way we can get a handle on it because it's already ubiquitous and everywhere. And we probably wouldn't want to because of the four pillars of biotech. It's pretty much DNA synthesis to write DNA, DNA sequencing to read it, CRISPR to edit it, and then polymerase chain reaction to amplify it and make more and see what's there. And you don't want to mess with those or you cripple the bioeconomy. But we can screen synthesis. And in fact, we can screen plausibly sequencing. I mean, that would be an, another way for us to get a handle on, on these kinds of threats. If not just every DNA synthesizer screened for hazards, but every sequencer also screened for hazards and would notify folks if it sequenced a read for something that was extremely hazardous, like a suspected pandemic pathogen that could plausibly make us a lot safer. So I would prefer that we go in those directions because they can be done without slowing down beneficial research. I'd like to ask a quick follow-up. I really appreciate what you, uh, your, your criticism of the term gain of function. I must say that I think I'm in the majority of Americans who don't have any idea what that term means. <laughs> and when, when uh, Dr. Fauci and Senator Paul had their a memorable and awful argument about gain of function. I, I was, I, it, it was, we were drawn to it because it was so uh, uh, vigorous and intense, but um, I think most people didn't have an idea what they were talking about. So is there a better, a more accessible term, or is it something really that ought not to uh, have a, a, an easy title uh, attached to it? I would prefer that we focus on, again, the identification step, because there's only a narrow subset of experiments that can plausibly tell us, would this thing cause a pandemic in humans? 
if it's not already causing a pandemic in humans. So how, how would we know? Well, if there is a virus and it's say from animals, does it infect relevant human cells in a dish? So say our airway epithelial cells for a respiratory virus, does it grow in, the, in cultures of those cells nearly as efficiently as a human respiratory virus of the same family? If so, that's a pretty powerful indicator that it could cause a pandemic. Same if we look at transmission in ferrets or in mice engineered to express the human entry protein, the, the receptors for that particular virus. Transmission studies are also a major update in the direction of this thing could cause a pandemic. The other direction, if we are engineering human viruses for gene therapy purposes, if you engineer it in such a way as to avoid the immune response, then you're circumventing population immunity. So if it still spreads as effectively in your laboratory assays, but you're evading some significant fraction of the innate cellular or antibody-based immune system, that's also a good indicator that it's going to cause a pandemic. So I would prefer that we focus on these pandemic virus identification experiments. And let me be very clear, these are only about characterizing the viruses in the laboratory. There's really nothing wrong with going out there and discovering the viruses and sequencing them, because that can help broad spectrum antibody and therapeutic development. And as long as the virus hunters don't infect, get infected and spread it to other people when they come back, which obviously if you just quarantine yourself for a month, that's pretty safe. So I think that can be done. It's really a don't take them back to the lab and run that narrow set of experiments that says, yes, this thing is probably a pandemic pathogen. Now I have to acknowledge that many folks, probably some in this room, think we ought to be doing that so we can better understand the threat from nature. But I submit that when viruses are that accessible and amenable to misuse, the numbers are just not in our favor because there's many viruses out there in nature and if we identify one that can plausibly cause a pandemic, you said you an optimist. I am an optimist. <laughs> Again, I think we can. I think the, the the end goal is to block all infectious disease transmission through certainly from a respiratory route and surface-borne route. I think we can do that within ten years with industry help. I think we have the technologies that we can that are mostly developed, other than the far UVC light generation where we need some investment in solid-state LED light development. I think we can do it, but. While we do it, we need to buy time. And I think the way we buy time is we refrain from publicly identifying viruses likely to cause pandemics. Because you do that and you give everyone in my field and many other fields, unfortunately, the ability to access them. And I, and I know this because one of my students who had no prior training in virology needed to make some viral replicons in the lab from several different families. And I said, why don't you just give it a shot? I'm not gonna give you much help. And she was able to do it for influenza, working part-time within a couple of months and a couple more months for a paramyxovirus. And the coronavirus was hard. So that's pretty informative. And yeah, MIT students are great, but again, there's a lot of people with those skills. And if someone without any background in virology can just do it, that suggests that the risk of identifying things that are likely to cause pandemics is just too high. Because if someone were to make them, if it spills over naturally, in a lab leak or, or it spills over from wild animal, that's a single point source that spreads from there. We have much more time to potentially identify it and contain it and eventually snuff it out like SARS-1. But if a human does it, they're likely to release it across multiple airports. And they're not likely to release one virus, they're likely to release 
all of them that they can access all at once. So to me, that risk is just much greater, and it is not worth it. But this is an argument we have to have. And I would love to see some actual cost-benefit models applied to it. It is stunning to me that we've been attempting to publicly identify, through this kind of characterization, pandemic-capable viruses for going on 14 years now with not one cost-benefit analysis of whether or not this is a good idea. Thank you. Ms. Levinson, question? Thank you. This has really been a, a fascinating discussion. Um, and I don't know if Billy. No, please. Go okay. So I, I want to go back to the, just the term gain of, first of all, thank you both very, very much. Um, the term gain of function and your sort of narrowing of the definition with the possibility that that could prevent someone in Congress, for example, with writing a bill that would prohibit other positive aspects of use of the technology for other non-nefarious uh, beneficial purposes, for example, in pharmaceutical um, and countermeasure development. So I think it's important that that word get out, that this does not only relate to human-to-human -human transmission um, as the, um, the, the goal, the endpoint. Um, and just the way, the same way that we had sequencing um, done commercially and is now done on tabletop measures, don't you expect that synthesis will go the same way and not necessarily be done only commercially? Um, that it will become much easier and simpler and done more rapidly so that your idea, Dr. Esfeld, of controlling um, what, and, and uh, guarding for and, and uh, making sure that there isn't the possibility of having two different companies be requested to synthesize something could be done eventually and not that far off in a laboratory where, or are you thinking that every, every synthesizer would have an automatic reporting function that would go into the cloud and be screened that way? I don't know. But, but you also talked about um, characterizing the viruses in the laboratory, but you, I think uh, Dr. Pope was saying that biosurveillance would be done in the field, so possibly with handheld sequencers, right? Is that, is that what you're thinking, that you're not necessarily bringing the virus to the laboratory or are you for the characterization? Yeah, I'll take that small piece first and then defer the, the much richer questions to Dr. Hesfeld. Uh, our standard biosurveillance strategies that we teach to our partner countries is field epidemiology. So it's the collection of the samples, the collection of the information related to you know, whether it came from a person or an environmental collection. But then that has to ultimately come back to the laboratory for analysis. But we don't yet have inexpensive, broad spectrum point of collection detection equipment. So to your, your description of what I think we need is, is exactly correct. We need future generations of machines, including the benchtop synthesis, DNA synthesis and assembly devices, to have screening built in. And I think that means the legislation needs to have something that requires them to offer verifiable screening. That is, the machine needs to report that it's been ordered to make something of a given sequence. It checked the, for an up-to-date list of hazards just before it began the synthesis, and that it was clear. It doesn't have to disclose what the order was as long as there was no hazard in it, but it needs to check in the cloud, again, using cryptography t for order security, whether or not anything matched the up-to-date list of hazards. And I think this is, and this is very achievable with current technology, and we're in, we're in discussions with some um, manufacturers of these devices to make sure that they're comfortable with the various ways of doing it. 
And eventually, yes, we want to then offer exchange programs. Here, trade in your, your terrible old phosphoramidite synthesizer using obsolete chemistry for a brand new, shiny, much faster enzymatic synthesis machine that also will prevent you from making pandemic viruses without permission. So that, thank you very much for that. It, you've used a, a few terms, suspected to, capable of, likely to cause. That is not language that's really useful from a regulatory perspective. Is there any uh, solution to that <laughs> for the federal government to be able to put in a regulatory system, also including updating the select agent program or the list where this seems to be guided? That is a great question. So I think it's evident from COVID that anything that can cause a pandemic will cause literally orders of magnitude more deaths than pretty much any other hazardous thing we can work with in the laboratory. So it's a little bit surprising that a lot of things have been labeled potential pandemic pathogens in the literature, whether or not they've been subjected to the full battery of, ca of characterization tests that I described, and yet they're not on the select agent list. So if someone in the literature says, hey, I'm really worried about this virus, it might potentially cause a pandemic, even if there's a 1% chance, 1% chance of a million American deaths, that's a lot. Sounds like that sort of thing should be on the list. So I would prefer to just leave it up to the research community and say, if you think this thing should be flagged as a potential pandemic pathogen, that should automatically promote it for consideration um, for a select agent addition. And with the consequent regulatory and access restrictions and the increase in biosafety due to, again, 10x reduction in lab-acquired infections for select agents rather than relative to normal NIH, BSL-3, and 4 labs. Well, thank you, uh, gentlemen, both of you. To, uh, our time has expired for this panel. We thank you for your, your testimony here and for your service to your country. Thank you. And um, we're going to break for lunch now and return here at 10 minutes after 1. Call it, oh, no, uh, thank you. No, the enemy. Um, thanks to Jim Greenwood for uh, uh, leading us uh, through the morning session. And this afternoon, uh, we go to our third panel, uh, uh, the title of which is Deterrence Strategy. So we have prevention, deterrence, and attribution for today and tomorrow. Our witnesses are Paul Dean, who's the pr principal deputy assistant secretary of the Bureau of Arms Control Verification and uh, Compliance at the Department of State. We heard earlier from uh, uh, Dr. Pope at uh, Defense. And then Dr. Diane uh, Deulius, uh, the director of the Center for the Study of Weapons of Mass Destruction at the um, National uh, Defense University, and Dr. Julius um, has been a really helpful uh, partner to the commission in its work. Um, she is, uh, we say fondly, a recidivist here. <laughs> She's testified before, and we welcome her back again. So uh, we, we invite opening remarks uh, from both of you at this time, and then we'll 
enter into discussion. Dr. Dulis. Great, thank you so much. And thank you for the kind invitation to be here. I enjoy the uh, commission so much and always follow your work. It's so important. Thank you. Um, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, how we think of deterrence in terms of biodefense, because it's sort of a unique um, situation. And we, we definitely consider the life sciences sort of a special exemption when it comes to WMD because of all of the benefits and things that accrue from doing life sciences work. It's open, it's shared, it's collaborative, and this is the way the innovations are achieved in the interest of benefits. Um, there are two specific spheres that protect us from risk in the life sciences, and I think it's important to sort of delineate those two. Um, and I'm going to say one is sort of a sphere of biosecurity, and the other is our biodefense posture. And they're not necessarily the same. There can be overlaps between the two, but I think it's important to recognize their differences. Biosecurity functions sort of left of boom, if I can say, and uh, functions around laboratory science in academia, in industry. And a lot of what we heard on the previous panel was addressing risks in that sphere, in biosecurity. And then the other side of it is, is biodefense. And what do we do right of boom when something the worst has happened and we find ourselves in a pandemic situation? So I want to mention a study that I was involved in for the Department of Defense in, at the National Academies of Sciences. And it's a couple of years old now, but I think it's still very relevant. Um, it was uh, biodefense in an age of synthetic biology. And we were tasked to look at all these emerging biotechnologies and try to weigh the uh, risks associated with them going forward. Specifically, it was risks to warfighters in the DOD, but it could be taken broadly um, to look broader across society. And when we did that study, we looked very carefully at those emerging biotechnologies, and we came up with some very uh, clear risk assessments of what we thought were the most uh, threatening things that people could do with biotechnology. And they involved things like reconstituting viruses, tinkering with bacteria, um, tinkering with other kinds of pathogens. And again, we heard some of those risks in the previous panel. But one thing that we talked about in that committee, and why I'm taking pains to mention it now, is because of something that Senator Lieberman said in the previous session, that you had heard uh, baseline complacency. So when we did that study, and clearly when we were uh, weighing the risks, we said, you know, we have this huge thing. We have a national biodefense. We do early detection. We do preparedness. We do response. We do recovery. We make medical countermeasures. And all of that weighs against these other risks left of boom. All our right of boom skill set weighs against the left of boom stuff. So uh, now we call that the national biodefense strategy. We had a version of it in 2018, and now we have an updated version in 2022. So when we made that study, <laughs> that was prior to COVID. And now we look across that baseline complacency that we had prior to COVID, and we can look at all of the things um, that, in my view, are erosions of that deterrence. Um, so first, I could address early warning and early awareness. We definitely need to do that better, particularly if we are dealing with an outbreak that could be hidden from the world. If we are thinking about what adversaries might do, if they think they can do something and not be detected, 
then that is something that they might consider. In terms of preparedness, um, I'm going to use an additional word in addition to deterrence, which is resilience. And so I would say we experienced a lack of resilience here in the United States in response to COVID-19 and in a couple of really important areas. First, I think our personal health resilience is low in the United States. We need to do a better job with that. That's, a very, that's, a, that's, a, that's something very hard to harden our, ourselves against, but people need to get healthier. Um, second, we had let some of our public health infrastructure degrade over time, and our public health system was not fully resilient in the face of COVID-19. Our preparedness and response platforms require modernization. We've been using some antiquated approaches for epidemiological modeling, rapid development of diagnostics and tests. We could do better predictions of what are the best medical countermeasures, how we look at the interactions of pathogens and hosts and their unique responses, the unique human responses to novel pathogens that have not been in humans before. And this modernization, I think, would make our, our platforms more resilient. And then the final one is supply chain resilience. I think we knew that our supply chains were in trouble, particularly from a DOD perspective before COVID-19. We had done a study um, that basically demonstrated our supply chains were hollowing out progressively since World War II. Some of this is about outsourcing to other countries. Some of it is about single source suppliers. And in many cases, it's both of those things, a single source supplier that is outside of the United States. So how do we make our internal supply chains much more resilient? So um, I think we can also do more in attribution, and I know you're going to address that later today, but I would say that there are ways to do that technically. Um, what, the, what you do after you attribute something to a country or an actor, I think, is, is where the, the space is lacking. And so I'll just close with saying um, that I think our biosecurity and biodefense approaches were designed with the idea of protecting against a weapon of mass destruction. But I think more and more it might be appealing to an adversary to achieve other kinds of goals they may have other than mass destruction. It might be mass disruption um, to not maybe kill large numbers of people, but to cause social instability, economic instability, cause a degradation of trust in our public health institutions, create area denial, that's particularly important for DOD, or achieve some other kind of goal that um, may not be something we have an active deterrent for right now. So I'll stop there, but I look forward to taking your questions. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Doctor. That was great. Uh, I said the, in my few opening words earlier that uh, if we've done anything on the commission constructive, it's because we've, uh, we've based our work on the uh, support and testimony of uh, experts and, you know, I looked at the list uh, of people testifying today, including the two of you, and everyone is a doctor, a range of doctors, um, medical doctors, PhDs, and Mr. Dean, I'm very happy to say <laughs> that I believe you're a doctor of jurisprudence, a fellow <laughs> lawyer. You, you prove that some of us really are, go are good for the public <laughs> interest. Okay. <laughs> Uh, uh, thanks, and, and please go ahead. 
Thank you very much, Senator. Uh, and thank you to the Commission for inviting uh, uh, us here today and hearing the State Department perspective on our role in deterring biological weapons threats. Of course, pursuing full implementation of the Biological Weapons Convention is a key element of U.S. efforts to deter any use of such weapons. And full and effective compliance with the BWC is fundamental to achieving the objective of ridding the world of biological weapons. In this regard, we strongly agree with the Commission's recommendation number 25 in the 2015 National Blueprint for Biodefense. And the BWC implementation poses special challenges. In the case of the BWC, compliance depends in large part on the purpose for which biological research is done. And this, of course, reflects the inherent dual-use nature of biotechnology. Our work is to ensure a strong and resilient norm against the use of biological weapons without stifling legitimate scientific research and commercial applications of biotechnology. This makes it all the more important for us in our biodiplomacy to engage states' parties regarding their compliance with the BWC, to strengthen the norm against the use of biological weapons, and to advocate for ways in which our partners can, can demonstrate greater transparency with the aim of reducing doubts or concerns about their actions and intentions. Now, as you can see from our recently published annual compliance report, the task of monitoring BWC compliance has grown increasingly complex as advances in science and technology have made it easier to develop biological agents for use as weapons. Most of the advances are dual use in nature. Although they are used widely for valuable, legitimate purposes, they can also be misused for prohibited weapons purposes. This makes compliance assessment very difficult. These advances are occurring globally and cause us increasing concern. Now, taking this into account, as described in the recently published compliance report, the United States is strongly concerned about the compliance of the PRC, Iran, DPRK, and Russia with their BWC obligations. Our effort in shining a light on these countries of concern is also an element of U.S. biothreat deterrence strategy. But we may be limited in discussing here the details due to reporting and analysis at levels of classification. But in an unclassified format, in sum, the, both the PRC and Iran's biological activities continue to raise concerns regarding their BWC compliance given the lack of sufficient information about the extent of these states' potential BW programs. Our 2023 compliance report also highlights the United States' determination that the DPRK and Russia each have offensive biological weapons programs and are in violation of Articles 1 and 2 of the Convention. Now, our bureau in the State Department, the Arms Control Bureau, AVC, continues to press these states using the full range of U.S. diplomatic tools to comply with the terms of the BWC. We are open to constructive, good-faith engagement, and where appropriate, AVC compliance findings can be used by other USG actors in furtherance of our comprehensive approach to deter biological weapons threats. For example, in 2020, the United States added three Russian facilities to the Department of Commerce's entity list, specifically because the United States has reasonable cause to believe these institutes are Russian MOD facilities associated with their BW program. These diplomatic efforts to promote BWC compliance supplement and reinforce other national efforts at BW deterrence as set out in the National Biodefense Strategy and Implementation Plan. 
on the multilateral front in deterring biological threats, the United States is an active player in building the technical capability and operationalization of the UN Secretary General's mechanism, which is the only international mechanism for investigations of alleged use of biological or toxin weapons. The UN SGM operates under the authority of the UN Secretary General according to procedures endorsed by the General Assembly. Initiation of an investigation does not require any action from the Security Council, meaning that investigations can occur, occur even if there is deadlock in the Security Council. In the event of a suspected BW attack, an investigation team under the UN SGM can be deployed to determine the facts, including attribution if feasible, regarding the alleged use of biological or toxin weapons. Russia, of course, has repeatedly tried to undermine the independence of the Secretary General's mechanism, but we have maintained a strong international consensus on this point, one that we must continue to maintain and reinforce. I hope this talk has provided some insights into the way that the State Department, and AVC in particular, can support the integrated and comprehensive U.S. approach to deterring biological weapons. But before I close, I did want to say a few final words about our next steps on the diplomatic front. In 2022, the 9th BWC Review Conference established a new working group with a clear mandate to develop recommendations on strengthening and institutionalizing the convention, including in the areas of national implementation, transparency, and compliance. We are realistic about the challenges we face, but this intercessional process gives us a real chance to explore ways to strengthen the BWC to address today's challenges. Toward that end, U.S. Special Representative Ken Ward is leading our efforts in this area, working closely with interagency and community stakeholders, allies, and partners to consider and discuss various options to address the current and future BW landscape. This effort is currently underway, and we are preparing our teams for meetings in Geneva this August and December, and holding workshops to develop our positions as we head into those meetings. We hope, we hope and advocate that other parties to the BWC are also preparing because we are taking this opportunity very seriously to work together with the international community to bring the BWC into the 21st century. Strengthening the convention, especially on issues related to confidence building, transparency, and compliance would greatly support U.S. deterrence efforts. I will stop here and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Uh, thank you uh, both. That was, that was excellent testimony. So um, I'm going to call you Dr. Dean. <laughs> uh, so Dr. Dean, um, so your testimony really backs up uh, the State Department report that we had looked at and uh, the testimony of Dr. Pope from the Defense Department this morning. So I, I just it seemed, what you're saying, both of you, in the report is that we have no doubt that um, Russia and North Korea have uh, biological weapons programs in violation of the BWC, the Biological Weapons Conventions, and uh, we suspect that uh, China and Iran are in uh, vi violation of the convention also, though, though I gather the, the state of our um, understanding of that or evidence of it is somewhat less. So um, what, what do we do knowing that? Um, I appreciate what you said about the diplomatic initiatives. I, I guess, uh, really, for us on the commission, as we think about uh, updating our uh, 2015 report and getting, I hope, into the whole question of uh, 
the threat of bioweapons uh, bio attack on the U.S. or our allies. What, what, and, and we've had a pretty good record of, of having uh, both the executive branch and Congress respond to our suggestions. What, what's the, uh, how can we be most helpful to, to you in uh, uh, deterring, preventing uh, these programs from striking us? Well, thank you very much, Senator, for that question. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a, it gets right to the heart of the issue. And you know, I think um, I would say there are at least two elements to an answer. One is to continue to conduct our very rigorous diplomacy to ensure that these instances of noncompliance remain outliers and that we continue to not um, give in to issue fatigue and acceptance on this issue and right. continue robust diplomacy to ensure that the norm against biological weapons use remains strong and as universally accepted as it, we can possibly make it. Um, and I think the second is to make sure, and it's related, that our diplomacy remains focused at bringing states back into the fold and making sure that they don't perceive any lack of unanimity in the international community on this norm and that they, that all, and this is a slow process, it's often a frustrating process, but it doesn't mean that we should give up on this process, in my view at least, uh, and that we remain focused on ensuring that states who choose to depart from this almost universally accepted norm face isolation and pressure because of that. Of course, I agree. Thank you. Um, are there other countries you worry about uh, where the, uh, uh, that is, worry about being in the process of developing bioweapons um, capability? I think the particular answer to the question maybe gets into some classified territory. Uh, I would say that we're always worried about this, and, and this is sort of a fundamental tenet of our diplomacy is not to take anything for granted and to make right. sure that our advocacy re reflects our desire to strengthen this norm and preserve this norm and to make sure uh, that we don't see any backsliding. And I think one important way of getting to this is just making sure that we are not accepting instances of, of noncompliance where they arise that um, states who are breaching the BWC are facing pressure, are facing approbation, and that other states are then perceiving this and incorporating that into their own decision-making calculus, hopefully keeping them within the BWC. Uh, okay, un understood uh, that there's only <clears throat> so much you can uh, say in a, here in an unclassified uh, setting. Um, uh, Dr. Dulles, one, one quick question because I've taken uh, my time really. I appreciate your focus on the resilience gaps, including in uh, pub our public health systems, because uh, it, it's not, talk about uh, going back to complacency. Uh, we don't see the relevance of public health systems very often, but um, one of the things that did fail us in the response to COVID was the inadequacy of our public health systems. Um, what's the answer to that now mm -hmm. so we don't go back to our baseline complacency? Um, thank you, Senator. That's an excellent question. And this is one of the reasons I brought up this term modernization, yeah. because I think um, until we were faced with a pandemic of this proportion, um, we weren't aware of where the weaknesses were, where are the where are the places where it's been degraded or they haven't kept up with 
technological advances that enable us to do these things better, to do these things more efficiently. And so um, we could look at that across the board. We could look at you know, better ways to do early detection. I don't think we necessarily need to wait for the next pandemic to happen um, to do some machine learning, to do, use some of the AI tools that you all were talking about before, um, it, use them in the good way, which is to explore, you know, what pathogens do we know of that are out there that would seem to be emerging even in, um, you know, extant places with maybe only a few people or animals or whatever. We can do some machine learning on that and say, if this were to become a pandemic, what, what are the best things that we could do to combat it if it happens. And we can, that's getting us to that 80% yeah. solution before it actually happens. So why aren't, why aren't we doing, spending time doing that in peacetime? Um, I think there's a lot to be done there. Um, and, and that can travel, you know, those kinds of things can lend themselves to uh, better diagnostics, better medical countermeasures when, you know, when boom hits and then we're into a pandemic scenario. So um, a, a lot of, biotechnology tools could be brought to bear. I also think our epidemiological modeling needs a lot of improvement, and that's something that we can be doing um, in today's world um, that incorporates so many of the things in our modern world that, that people do, how they, how they travel, how they integrate, how they interact with each other in cities versus other places, who's at risk, who's not at risk. We could do a much better job of modeling those things, and we don't have to wait till a pandemic happens to do it. Um, so I'd like to see a facelift on, on a number of our preparedness and response platforms. That, that's really helpful. I was just thinking as you were testifying that in my years of the Senate Armed Services Committee, I learned a new meaning for a word that had negative implications, which was redundancy. Uh, the military builds redundancy into some of its most uh, important systems. Um, in case the first level breaks down. So on a helicopter, there is a redundant second, sometimes third system, because you've got the pilot, the helicopter, and the mission that are jeopardized. And uh, I think we just need, we need, we need first to just beef up, beef up our public health system, uh, not yet with redundancy, just to get it to where it ought to be in the first case. Congressman Greenwood, thank you both. Redundancy, we don't even have. Yeah, redundancy, right. <laughs> so these, these house guys are so smart, really. We outnumber you three to two. Really, really. <laughs> so, Mr. Dean, uh, you talked about diplomacy, and um, what, I'm, my, what I'm thinking about, my question is that first off, with, with Russia and North Korea, um, it's hard for me to imagine under the current leadership of those two countries what. Diplomatic arrow we have left in the quiver that we haven't already fired. Um, there's that, um, uh, and then with China, when I think about you know, diplomacy with China, we have so many priorities there. You know, we we have uh, Taiwan, and we have their neutrality in Ukraine, and 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 um, uh, human rights, and intellectual property, and trade, and so forth. It would seem to me that you know coming clean about their biological weapons capacity would be pretty far down the list. Of our priorities in, 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 a, in a you know in a bilateral relationship, so um, help me think through you know what what diplomacy looks like in in, in, in Iran. There, it's just similarly. It seems like we <clears throat> played every 
you know, trick we have there, every card we have there. So what's left? Well, thanks, Congressman, for the question. And uh, certainly, we share your frustration with these are these are four very difficult actors. Um, and so I, I would say that um, that doesn't mean there's no point to maintaining diplomatic pressure on this issue. And of course, triaged as appropriate within the other competing priorities of managing those bilateral relationships, mm -hmm. which is, of course, a complicated issue. But I do think that if we're intent, and part of our, as the theme of this, this hearing is, on our deterrence strategy is ensuring that third states aren't perceiving a loosening of U.S. resolve on maintaining the BWC as the place for sort of normative development and, um, and, and, and meaningful exchange on preventing bioweapons threats, I think it serves us well to continue to maintain pressure even if, as you say, um, the good news story on these four states may be far off, but the fact of maintaining that diplomatic pressure is a strong signal to third states that we're very, very serious about this norm and we don't want any backsliding. And so I do think, I do perceive diplomatic value and foreign policy value in maintaining that, that, that pressure, uh, even you know, if our sort of expectations are, you know, should be appropriately calibrated. Thank you. And for Dr. Deulius, um, you, you sort of touched upon if you can get attribution, then what, right? And um, that's a really important question because I think of if, if, if Russia were to use a biological weapon in Ukraine right now, um, again, it's sort of what, <clears throat> what cards are left to play. Um, certainly, I don't think anybody's going to recommend a, 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 a biological attack on Russia, right? Mm -hmm. you know, kill a bunch of civilians for no reason. Um, and yet, um, <clears throat> there's, with the nuclear threat sitting out there, we've already found out what our limits are of, of you know, of participating in the, in the war. So uh, this may be an impossible question to, to answer, but, yeah. but, you know, what, not just in Russia, but generally speaking, what is, what is the <coughs> academic theory about how do you respond to a, uh, a biological attack uh, by a state um, if, in fact, you can make that attribution? Yeah, you asked me the hardest question that I knew was going to come up on this panel, and I hope it was going. To, I hoped it was going to be directed to my to my partner panelist here. I figured he's not allowed to answer I, right. that question. So, so no, you're you're spot on in that in that issue. There are two parts to the question, right? Which is technically can we do attribution? And I think there's a lot that we can do there. And again, I'm, I'm sort of on this um, deterrence by denial um, uh, slant here with my remarks. Um, to the extent that someone thinks they can't get caught, that's very important in this calculus. And it obviously, it depends on the different actors that we are talking about. And um, my colleague would know more about that than myself. But um, that in itself is a powerful deterrent. So if you can put some weight to the technical attribution piece, and I would advocate that um, you know we have networks of labs globally and internationally. Many of them are affiliated with the UN. And when outbreaks happen, these are labs that can participate in, they sequence the pathogens, they sequence the uh, genomes, and so forth. These labs could function in doing um, sort of forensics when novel pathogens or suspect pathogens appear. And now you have sort of a global coalition of folks that 
our adversaries can be aware, hey, this, this network of collaborative associations exists among many countries, um, and they're paying attention, and they're looking for things that might be emerging. And so that, that could be a helpful technical deterrent. But again, as to the question of once you've determined definitively that someone has done something, I don't, I, I don't, have, the, I don't have the answer for that. Um, I'll add one thing, because, because I know that BSAT laboratories and um, potentially risky research going on in, in those laboratories was brought up in the last session. And I do think that that's another thing that we should not let lapse in any way, um, and that we should have some rigorous standards for paying attention to what goes on in those laboratories. I wouldn't say we should stop all research if it's necessary for a public health purpose, but I think that, you know, Biosecurity, in some ways, it's it's sort of like a thousand little paper cuts. <laughs> you know, there isn't one single silver bullet that stops everybody from doing anything in their tracks. But if you have many, many, many of these um, small deterrents, when you when they're taken together, then they frequently become a, a powerful deterrent um, as a whole. Yeah, it just occurred to me that that um, you could have if, if if a Russia, for instance, in this current situation with Ukraine. Um, didn't want to cross that red line of lethal bioterror warfare, right? They could cross a line that doesn't kill, but just makes all of the other combatants so sick they can't fight, right? right. And that's an interesting, <clears throat> um, uh, interesting calculation, I would think. And it, it may also be less easily attributed if it's um, something that's out there that causes dysentery or causes any kind of, you know, debilitating disease. Yield back, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, no, that's realistic. I, I was really struck this morning when uh, uh, Dr. Pope suggested, talking about the uh, uh, potential use of uh, biological weapons, that, for instance, the Chinese, in a, a conflict which we all hope and pray will never happen, military conflict over Taiwan, might use biological weapons uh, as a kind of denial of accessibility, or as uh, Jim Greenwood just said, uh, to uh, sort of reduce the capability of, of the defending forces, certainly the Taiwanese and maybe our own uh, as well. Senator Daschle. Well, let me join my colleagues in thanking both of you for your excellent presentations. Um, and I think, Mr. Dean in particular, I. I I totally agree with your assertion that diplomacy has got to be the front line of our efforts to contain biological weapon expansion. But I, I would, I, I guess, wonder, because we're dealing with rogue nations and because our leverage is so limited, um, I mean, there are economic sanctions, but there's not much more. It leads me just to ask more of an academic question, and I certainly wouldn't want, wouldn't want any confusion. I'm not advocating this, but we use uh, mutually assured destruction on the nuclear deterrent side pretty effectively for the last 80 years. Um, but we've chosen not to use mutually assured destruction on biological weapons. What is the distinction? If we're willing to destroy millions of lives with a nuclear weapon, what is it about biological weapons that keep us from 
employing a mutually assured destruction approach here too? Um, it's a fascinating question, almost philosophical in nature and certainly well above my pay grade, as most philosophical questions are. Um, I, I would say I, certainly the, the, the parallels are interesting between sort of an integrated deterrence conversation on the nuclear side and this conversation we're having today. And it's, it's certainly fascinating to hear from colleagues about all of the various national levers and tools that we can put in play in an integrated comprehensive strategy to deter bioweapons threats. Um, you know, I, I do think, and I, I hear your point on uh, sort of our lack of enforcement leverage. Uh, and, you know, I do think this, the Secretary General's mechanism is a very interesting and new uh, data point in that. Uh, and so we have a mechanism that without um, being able to be blocked by Russia, for example, on the Security Council that can, uh, can come in to investigate allegations of VWs uh, and hopefully at a certain point make some attribution decisions. So I do think that we in our diplomatic efforts are thinking creatively to try to address that gap with the, the tools that we have to ensure that we're ahead of the curve uh, in putting together diplomatic and international responses um, to, to make sure that we're doing our part in the sort of comprehensive integrated deterrence uh, against bio threats. Well, thank you for, for that answer. Dr. Dios, Dr. Asphalt this morning made an interesting, um, had an interesting and somewhat innovative answer to a question I asked about AI. He, he felt that maybe we could create a capacity through AI to deter AI that that we want to deter. Uh, in other words, good AI versus bad AI. I'm interested in any reaction you have to that assertion and what thoughts you might have about our capacity to ensure that the good AI beats the bad AI. Wow, that's a really hard question. Um, but I find that a fascinating um, a fascinating proposal as when I heard it as well earlier. And um, I, I guess what it comes down to is the the, the ability to um, you know, I hate to, I hate to compare this to to risk assessment frameworks, but it's almost like having AI that assesses other AI all the time. And in biotechnology, we do that. You know, we're always scientists are always looking, at what everybody else does and assessing them. Um, and it's astonishing sometimes how people can conceive of something and they want to create something or they want to do a set of experiments and they just don't consider that it may have this other nefarious outcome that, they, that they're not even thinking about, that's not even on their radar screen. Um, and, so, and so I would liken it to that. To, to me, that seems like that kind of situation where you're constantly... Um, putting checks and balances within that same system. Um, and if, so if you have AI that's doing one thing, you would have other AI that's looking at what that AI is doing and trying to make some observations about it. Um, so, I, so if that could be applied more broadly to biotechnology outside of AI, um, that's an interesting question to me. Um, it's an interesting parallel. Um, I, I will say uh, that, that this, is a, this is another concern that comes with um, in, that comes with emerging biotechnology as it, as it, the capabilities are advancing, that someone may not inten intend harm, but they could create something unintentionally that could cause harm. And so those kinds of assessments could help us watch for those things. 
Well, I guess I, I just, somebody, I can't remember if it was which of our two uh, guests this morning made the comment there are about 30,000 people that have access to the technological capacity already to build a biological weapon, and AI is going to make that a multiple by tens, if not hundreds. And I, I think our maybe our biggest threat and challenge is going to be not from a rogue nation, but from somebody with AI capacity who's got uh, ill intent and, uh, and how we defend against that and how we leverage whatever we can to address that threat in a deterrence context is, is, um, is gonna be worth their weight in gold and, uh, and all whatever we can pay them. But it just seems to me we, we have to be thinking about that. And I, just before I, if, if either of you have any reaction to that, I'd be interested. And then I will thank you both. Well, I think it's you've highlighted a really important issue, and I do think, um, you know, obviously not having a, a sort of a technical or scientific background on AI, uh, but I think on the sort of norm generation framework, I mean, I think it's certainly something that we can do to work to build an international consensus around behavioral norms that AI should not be used in these ways that you're describing. Uh, it sort of it raises the, the sort of the visibility of the issue. And, and build sort of a preemptive consensus around the idea that this is something that's off limits. Uh, and we'd have to work with our technical colleagues to sort of come in and, and, and figure out how to implement that and make that sort of verifiable. But um, I think it, it's, a, it's an issue that I certainly uh, have written down and I appreciate uh, you raising. Um, and so I'll just add one more comment to that that I didn't say before is that um, you know, I mentioned the national biodefense strategy, but we also have a national defense strategy, the NDS, which talks about um, uh, denial, resilience, and threats of cost and position are some of the pillars within the national defense strategy. But a lot of that centers around uh, cyber infrastructures and putting something that they're calling integrated deterrence in place for those kinds of things. And so we could think about um, what kinds of things from the national defense strategy around integrated deterrence might be relevant to this space that you're concerned about? Thank you both. <clears throat> thank you both. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Tom. I, I thought your uh, question uh, about the uh, parallel to mutual assured destruction was an important one. The one probably is under consideration in our national security uh, leadership because it's hard, if we worry about uh, a real threat from um, biological weapons against us um, and, and we identify uh, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, well, I agree with Tom Daschle that we, obviously we should pursue a diplomatic course. It's hard to imagine, certainly Iran and North Korea, probably now Russia, um, and maybe China too, oddly China maybe, <laughs> is the most hopeful at this point because of the mutuality economically of our relationship. But what I'm saying is it's hard to imagine that any of the four of them would enter into uh, diplomatic negotiations that would limit the biological weapons uh, capacity they have developed um, without some fear that they would, um, they would suffer greatly themselves from biological or other weapons. Uh, that, that we would visit on them just as 
we made that same threat to the Soviets during the Cold War. Anyway, thanks for bringing that up. Secretary Shalala. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you to both of you. Um, Dr. Dean, I'm not used to calling lawyers doctor, but <laughs> I know. he majored in classics as an undergraduate, so that's a good oh, preparation that's good. For, okay. for the law. Um, in diplomacy with the State Department, um, do, you, um, do you think just about nations or also about the um, UN agencies? For instance, what role do you see WHO have, for example, or UNICEF or uh, UNAIDS, the health agencies of the UN in terms of their own preparation? Uh, thank you for the question. Uh, and, and certainly, I, I don't mean to present an unduly narrow vision of the State Department's global diplomatic efforts in bio. I, I'm, I'm simply speaking on the arms control side of this, on how to strengthen the BWC. But I certainly agree with you that we have a role to play, both bilaterally with our partners and with other multilateral international organizations, on the whole full range of health and, and biosecurity. And so I certainly was not intending to minimize the vital importance of those kinds of diplomatic engagements in our overall strategy. Uh, and so I, I certainly take your point, and I appreciate you raising that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Dr. DeUlius, um, I'm struggling with uh, the role of the Defense Department, particularly watching Operation Warp Speed. While everybody gives credit, it actually was a general that executed it um, because a defense had the uh, capacity and the um, certainly the capacity to purchase things and and to write contracts and do a lot of those uh, kinds of things. Um, you've been all over the government in terms of your role. Um, do we need to rethink the role of defense, uh, particularly in supply chain diversification, in the purchasing capacity? Um, uh, everybody talks about the Defense Production, uh, Production Act, but actually defense had the authority um, to run the purchasing part of this. Um, and um, I wonder whether this commission in particular needs to rethink the role of defense in relationship to HHS and some of the health agencies. Thank you for the question. That's a fantastic question. And it's something that um, I've been spending a lot of time thinking about that since the pandemic happened um, in terms of the role of the Department of Defense. Currently, the DOD has undertaken something called um, uh, a biodefense posture review. So there's a nuclear posture review and missile reviews and things like that. They've never done one for biological threats before a biodefense posture review. And that that review is still um, in progress. It's not completed yet. It's it's still um, in the works. But some of the things that you're talking about absolutely are, should be under consideration for what is the role of the Department of Defense. Um, yes, by, by um, sheer capabilities, there's things that defense could do um, that were demonstrated during this pandemic. Um, some of and my, they were well-funded. Yes, and some, some of my defense colleagues will refer to some of those things as other departments say, uh, calling that the easy button. We can push the easy button. DOD can do it. Um, and so let's have them do it because we're you know all hands on deck and we have to to, we have to respond to the pandemic, and we've got to get this done. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't go back and relook at establishing some lines of 
you know, what are the best things for DOD to lean forward on and what are the best things for, for departments like HHS to ensure that they can do fully well um, and well in advance and be prepared to do in, in a pandemic. One of the challenges in the pandemic for DOD was the fact that when the pandemic started, they began this lean forward, right. and then they had to consider uh, warfighter protection. So now warfighters are getting sick from the pandemic. You're trying to deploy these folks to help with the civilian response. So the Defense Support of Civil Authorities was leaning forward pretty pretty far, <laughs> and now you, and, and on the backside of it, there weren't rapid uh, diagnostics and tests, the DOD was reliant on the civilian side to provide those things. And when they were long in coming, it affected things like the Theodore Roosevelt. And now we've got um, you know, a, a major carrier that's got to let all the people off because we don't know who's got COVID and who hasn't. I mean, that, that was a wake up call right there um, for the Defense Department. So, so um, I, 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 I'm going on and on because I work for DOD right now. Um, but in short, I would say, yes, that's something I think you could, you could um, take a look at and that would be well received. So um, part of the ongoing strategy for this commission is to sort out DOD's capacity to execute and HHS's uh, capacity to develop policy and direction. Mm -hmm. But if you look carefully at Operation Warp Speed, there was an overall advisory board on top of uh, the strategy, but DOD basically did the execution. Yeah, that is correct. Um, I, don't, I don't see any reason why HHS could not have executed that as well, other than perhaps it was expedient for the DOD to accomplish that. The, the other part of this is Except that- a, 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 HHS does not do that level of purchasing. Mm -hmm. Doesn't have that level of contracting capacity. Yeah, that I would say, but also I think um, putting security frames around that um, right. so, so in other words, to, to vet all the companies that were providing and ensure a security, um, that security was being paid attention to, that, I think that was another reason why DOD made a better solution in addition to the, to the sheer size. But HHS also has uh, FDA, which has to approve the, um, uh, the production of vaccines, for instance, and that the labs at least. Yeah, correct. Or the manufacturing facilities. Correct. So somehow we have to sort this yes. out. Yeah. When when I was at Asper, we had a committee called the FEMC, which was a public health emergency medical countermeasures enterprise. And it's a mouthful. But basically it was a coalition of the willing across HHS, DOD, DHS that included FDA, CDC, et cetera. And and the whole purpose of that group was to hash out how medical countermeasures um, are, are ginned up and diagnostics as well. And so in my view, that, that committee did a lot just all the time um, in figuring out roles, responsibilities, which medical countermeasures and diagnostics do we need to be focusing on and who's going to be doing what. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I was at DOD during the, um, during the pandemic, so I don't know how that particular committee functioned during the pandemic, but there are others who could probably tell you. And if, that's a, if that is a place. Ad hoc structure, mm -hmm. similar to that. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Donna. Uh, Congressman Upton. Well, thank you. Thank you both for your testimony and your, your, your 
life work. Um, uh, Dr. DeVille, you talked about it, um, what I'll call wake-up calls uh, with COVID, unhealthy society, public health infrastructure weaknesses, uh, lack of modernization, supply chain issues, single source supplies. So a question that we had earlier, and I know you were here, um, do you think that the Congress, when they, when they finally get to doing a, a CDC uh, reauthorization, yeah. Do you th do you have a recommendation that maybe w some some of the things that they could do to address these, particularly in the public health infrastructure work? I mean, I I know the people that were in my district and they work so hard and they work so long, and uh, they were really the strength of trying to get through this whole thing. But what can we do to help the folks on the ground as it relates to that? And, would that be an even stronger role for the CDC to undertake uh, with, obviously, would be funding, but some some type of direction from the Congress uh, to do so? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, in, in terms of our public health system during COVID, it, it, there was sort of a dichotomy there because we had um, people who were responding to the pandemic and then whole other components of health sort of completely shut down during the pandemic. So one of the questions I think about is, you know, um, how could we mobilize these other, instead of shutting half of our healthcare system down, um, how, how could we mobilize those other, other components to be more meaningfully participating in the response so that we're not relying on the same people to be, you know, working so hard and too few in number. Um, so, so I think that's one thing um, that, that we need to think about. Um, I, I also think that in terms of the CDC, um, there were some things that um, could have sooner engaged with industry components to make things go faster. Um, I don't think necessarily government is good at everything. Um, and so um, to think that we could get diagnostics out the door just by building them in-house at, at CDC, I think I think that was a mistake at the beginning. And I think it, it would, might have been a better idea to more quickly go to the private sector and um, get, get them activated. Um, they were chomping at the bit, right? Um, and, and so... Doing that faster, I think, would also help. Yeah, so I, I want to connect the dots a little bit, I think, between your, your testimonies. Obviously, we want attribution. Um, we want the resources to be able to do that. We want the full range of tools in the toolbox, uh, and it seems like we're stretched, you know, particularly with the, with the number of countries that you said. And even though all of us have had top-secret clearance, none of us have it today, mm -hmm. uh, but one of the issues is uh, is likely that we can't identify the sources that could tell us where it is, what it is, and the possible use because it would destroy um, that, that network of, of intelligence. Uh, and something that I think you said, uh, Dr. DeLulius, was uh, as a deterrent, someone thinks that they can't get caught. Maybe you said that, to Mr. Dean. Um, that is a deterrent that ought to be used. And so to me, it tells me that we ought to be as transparent as we can as a nation, saying it's going to be this country and this country. We might, might not tell you it was, you know, 
whoever that, that gave us that information, but to let the rest of the world know, in fact, that they're beginning to embark on it. And I guess my question comes around to Syria. I mean, we know that they use these weapons uh, in Aleppo and some other places there. What has happened to the investigation to try and pinpoint exactly where they got it and, and what type of sanctions or what, what type of pushback? Uh, I know it's not happened, in, at least that I know of, in the last couple of months, but it was certainly there a year or two ago. Um, and I would guess that, Mr. Dean, you probably know more about that than anybody else here in the room. Well, thank you for that. And I do think that um, some of the, the parallels between where we are with the BWC and where we are with the Chemical Weapons Convention are, I think, highly instructive. And in, in, in many ways, episodes, like including with Syria, are informing our diplomatic priorities on the BW side to ensure that we are finding ways to launch investigation and attribution mechanisms like the Secretary General's mechanism that aren't blockable by Russia, for example, uh, who is a voting member of the OPCW. And so we are, we're, we're trying to process and learn from those experiences, especially the Syria experience, in looking forward to advancing our diplomatic priorities on the bio side. And I think also uh, on the issue of, um, I think it's been a sort of a theme of the day on complacency, that we're making sure that we are continuing to con make these issues at the forefront of the international community's mind, and we're not giving in to complacency, because I think complacency favors Russia. Complacency favors Syria. And so I think it's in our foreign policy interest to maintain um, the initiative on this issue. And so we are, we're, we're learning from the Syria episode, and we're trying to adapt, you know, based on that and, and, and find ways to isolate our adversary, isolate bad actors, and promote um, to the maximum extent possible a, a coalition around an enduring norm on the non-use of biological weapons. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Fred. Uh, Dr. George, I am thinking with the powers invested in me, <laughs> noting that two of our members have to leave early, that it might be a good idea to skip the break and go right to the third panel if everybody's here. That's fine, sir. Okay. One last quick question for you, Dr. Dulis. Um, on the commission, we're following with interest the uh, progress in the Defense Department on the biodefense posture review, because it, it, it will relate to what we put into this report, and uh, we understand they're finalizing it. Do you have any uh, sense of what the timing is? That's the $64 million question. Um, my understanding is that it's going through clearances with okay. their Office of General Counsel right now. That was this week. And then it's going to, I think, some four-star review after that. So I, I want to say it's getting close, yeah. um, but uh, I, can't, I couldn't give you a day. Okay, understood. Okay. Uh, thanks to both of you uh, for your public service, but also for your very helpful testimony. Thought-provoking, really, to us today. Thank you Thank very you. much. Okay, we'll go on to, I think I'm going to uh, turn the gavel back to you, Congressman no, Greenwood. I, I did the hard work all morning. You did, you did. You deserve uh, overtime, really. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> I will do my best. Uh, panel four, uh, we now uh, move on to the important question, third element of our hearing today, which is on uh, attribution, uh, which has been referred to a few times. Um, 
Well, for instance, in the, in the most uh, visible case of that, uh, we're still arguing about uh, where did the COVID-19 pandemic begin and how. I think pretty much everybody thinks it started in China, but, but how. And um, uh, the, the uh, testimony this morning, which seemed quite correct and relevant, which is that if one of the reasons Russia might, I mean, we're, who knows about Putin, use biological weapons in Ukraine on the Ukrainians would be the uh, difficulty of attribution, of saying definitively that uh, if the Ukrainians started to get sick, that, that, that's what, that he was the source of it, whereas if technical nuclear weapons were used, it would be pretty obvious self-evident that he was the source of it. So uh, thanks to this uh, final panel of the day, again, uh, excellent, uh, <laughs> continuing with my theme, all doctors, uh, all PhDs. Uh, Dr. Douglas Anders is chief of the uh, Scientific Response and Analysis Unit at the FBI Laboratory. Uh, Dr. Uh, Jacob, Jake Sweat. <laughs> Uh, Jake's a popular name in the federal government today, uh, is co-founder of Alt Labs and a visiting scientist at the Biodesign Institute, Arizona State University. And Dr. Eric Pevsner is chief, chief of the Epidemiology Workforce Branch and Epidemic Intelligence Service at the CDC, the Centers for uh, Disease Control and Prevention. Thank you all for you're a great public service. Thanks for being here. Uh, Dr. Andrews, uh, we'll begin with you. Thank you very much and good afternoon. Uh, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to come speak before the commission today. And I thank you for the opportunity, especially at the last minute change uh, for the FBI representation. Uh, again, I'm Doug Anders. I'm the senior level scientist for CBRN at the FBI laboratory. And I just want to talk to you today a little bit about uh, biological attribution. Uh, obviously, that's a big topic of interest here. And I hope that I don't uh, um, insult any of my predecessors here or previous speakers. I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about biological attribution and what it means to the FBI. So that I think that we have established a common background before talking more about its relationship uh, to biological attribution. So often when I'm asked about biological attribution, the focus of the discussion tends to be on laboratory methods and technologies that are utilized to characterize biological materials. And although science does play a very important role in biological attribution, it's just one piece of the bigger process when we practice attribution, we're talking about a, a process whereby all available information is used to make an association between an item of evidence and the perpetrator of a crime. Available information typically includes investigative information in combination with the results of examinations of evidence. I'm sure most everyone in this room, if they haven't, and not everyone, has seen attribution that is portrayed on television. It might involve a scenario such as finding a fingerprint or some blood that is sent to the lab. The person in the lab then uses the test results to search a database. There's usually a magical moment when a match is made that includes a full biographical profile of a subject who then is arrested. In this type of scenario, technology certainly plays an important part. It provides the capability to characterize the, finger, the fingerprint by its loops, its whirls, and its ridge breakpoints or the DNA by its genetic sequence. 
but the ability to attribute a fingerprint or a DNA sample requires that you have a known reference to compare it to. A fingerprint found at a crime scene without having a known reference in a database or from a suspect's fingerprint card is just an unidentified fingerprint. The same is true for DNA that's been collected from a crime scene that doesn't have a matching reference DNA. It's just unidentified DNA at that point. But what if you did have a corresponding reference fingerprint or a DNA profile that matched the results? While you may be able to attribute that biometric evidence to a person, it's still insufficient to determine whether or not that person is in fact the criminal. That's where investigative information and or intelligence information plays an important role. Let's use a hypothetical scenario where there's a bank robbery and there's a gun left behind at the scene. The gun is collected as evidence and some fingerprints are found on the gun that match a person who sells weapons. We have to determine whether or not this person was even at the bank at the time of the robbery to know whether or not they could have committed the crime. Maybe the person's fingerprints are on the gun because they sold it before the robbery occurred. Biological attribution must follow a similar process. We can apply a wide array of technologies to characterize the biological material, but we also need to have that investigative and intelligence information in order to make an attribution of the evidence to either the perpetrator or to the perpetrators. Much like the analysis of the blood at the crime in the crime show, genetic analysis can play an important part in biological attribution. Using the Amerithrax case as an example, and I know Senator Daschle is very familiar with this, Genetic analysis was used very early in that investigation to determine not only that it was Bacillus anthracis, but more specifically that it was the AIM strain of that species. It was identified as the AIM strain because there was a genetic profile that existed in a database, and that genetic fingerprint was what allowed us to distinguish it from other identified species, uh, strains of that species. That scientific evidence was then used by the investigators to get subpoenas for everyone who had this AIM strain to submit a sample for further analysis. It didn't tell us who did it at that point, but it was a very important step forward in the attribution process. Piece by piece, investigators assembled bits of investigative information and scientific evidence in an effort to attribute the anthrax to the perpetrator. In the more than 20 years since the Amerithrax investigation began, there have been tremendous advancements in the technologies and the capabilities that we have to examine evidence from bioterrorism crimes. Through our partnership with the Department of Homeland Security, we now have the National Bioforensic Analysis Center, or NBFAC, that is dedicated to the development and application of cutting-edge technology and allows us to characterize biological evidence in ways we never could in 2001. Genetic analysis of biological materials now takes a matter of hours or days, whereas it used to take weeks to months or even longer. While we're analyzing the biological agent, we're also conducting conventional forensic exams of contaminated evidence, such as fingerprints from letters containing the ricin toxin. These advancements and capabilities would not have been possible without these partnerships and the ability to build and sustain them. As the threat of biological agents evolves or emerges, so too has the technology. We have shifted from an agent-specific detection approach to one where the methods used are agnostic to what the biological threat agent is. This has allowed us to be more versatile in identifying and characterizing whatever the biological threat might be. 
Regardless of the scientific developments, they remain insufficient by themselves to associate a specific biological threat incident to a perpetrator. Although we may be able to compress the timeline with advancements in technology and high quality data, attribution still requires the combination of forensic science and investigative information. So I'll stop there and I'll welcome any questions that you might have. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks, Dr. Andrews. That was excellent. Uh, Dr. Pevsner, please. Thank you. Um, so you may be wondering why I'm here. And <laughs> the reason why I'm here is in 1951, Alexander Langmuir was thinking much like this commission. He was really concerned about the threat of a biological attack in the United States. So he established at CDC the Epidemic Intelligence Service. And what he did is he worked really hard to attract really smart people to come to CDC who wanted to be of service and to be trained to investigate biological threats. Was, was he the director then? He was not the director of CDC. He was the director, the founder of the Epidemic Intelligence uh -huh. Service. And <clears throat> so I was tasked with coming and thinking about three recommendations to make with you today. And so I'm going to be focusing on systems, people, and training. And a big part of my job is that training part as director of the Epidemic Intelligence Service. When we think about systems, you've heard a lot about it here today. In systems, we need that capability to be able to detect pathogens. And that's the data that people collect at our state and local health departments that get shared with CDC. We're able to analyze that and detect if there's something different or unusual happening, and then we can investigate further. It's also the laboratory tests that are needed to be able to confirm the presence of a pathogen. So that's, those are part of the systems. But you need the people to operate those systems. Like Representative Upton, you talked about those incredibly hard-working people um, that you re represented. And by the way, full disclosure, I'm a third-generation Spartan. So uh, uh, I know you are, but I still appreciate your service uh. to my home state. <laughs> and the, the people are the foundation to make these systems work. And so we have that great challenge of attracting people into public health. And we've heard about some of those challenges today, and I'll expound on that a little bit more. Then there's the training element. So when we can find these people, we need to make sure that we have some of them that are really trained with this investigative element that can go out and determine, is there a biological threat that we need to be responding to? And that has been the responsibility at CDC of the Epidemic Intelligence Service. And an example of that to try and bring all this home is uh, in the past year, we had some people that became very sick in this country. And they became sick with a bacteria, uh, Percoderia pseudomaliae, uh, which causes mielidosis. And that's a select one agent. So that obviously triggered awareness at CDC and also our colleagues at the FBI. We worked together. And very quickly, our disease detects us from the Epidemic Intelligence Service, along with we have a sibling program, our Laboratory Leadership Service, went out to investigate. And yeah, we, we had the laboratory capacity to detect the pathogen and determine that was the cause of people getting sick and of dying. But the harder task was, what was it that was really making people sick? What was the source? Was it a biological attack? It could have been. But ultimately, it was determined as a contaminated product. It was a scented oil spray that people were using that was available on shelves at Walmarts across the United States. And through the very thoughtful and rigorous approach by our disease detectives, they were able to determine it was that spray, and they were able to work to get that product pulled off the shelves. 
and protect millions of Americans who potentially could have been exposed and infected from the select one agent. So when we think about systems, people, and training, you've heard uh, phrases today about uh, devastating loss of infrastructure, Senator Daschle, you mentioned. We heard uh, about degradation. We heard about the need for modernization and resilience, and all these things are true. And that is something that HHS and CDC is working on. And thankfully, as a result of the American Rescue Plan, for the first time, we had $3 billion that went out the door this past November. And that went out to all of our state and local public health departments. And what was really novel about this is this gave these health departments, it was not disease specific. Normally, we're handcuffed as far as what we can do because we get specific money for sexually transmitted infections or we get something for youth tobacco use. And we can't move those funds and direct them where there's the greatest sense of urgency. With these funds, state and local health departments were able to direct the money where it was needed. So they're using it to strengthen their workforce. They're using it to reinvigorate and modernize these systems. And all this together will help not with potential biological threats, but also with just strengthening the public health system. And we get this, the other term was complacency we heard about it. We saw it in the New York Times this past weekend, and we've discussed it today. And that's the <clears throat> I think the top level recommendation that I'd ask for the committee to really think about is for decades, we've been asking the Congress and the American people to get behind strengthening the public health infrastructure. And COVID clearly showed the degradation of the system, the need for a strengthened system, and now we have this opportunity with this $3 billion. And, but we need to sustain that. These systems can be developed, they can be started to be implemented, but it's gonna take a much greater commitment so we can sustain this and avoid that complacency so we're ready for the next threat and, and supporting all the public health challenges they're facing the nation. Thank you. Thank you, <clears throat> very interesting. Dr. Sweat, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for your help to the commission. My pleasure. Uh, in our past work. I have to say too, my, uh, my fiance is an outgoing EIS officer, so in the, in the parlance of the commission, I'd like to associate myself with uh, <laughs> results. Um, when a biological threat you know, enters into the world, there's a, a sequence of events that have to occur. First, we have to know that it's there. Sometimes that's difficult. Uh, next, when we realize there's a pathogen, uh, we have to understand what it is. Is it, is it something new? Is it something, uh, is it a familiar foe? And the next question is, you know, is it an endemic pathogen? Is it a spillover or is it engineered? And if the answer to that last question is yes, then the obvious next question is who engineered it? Uh, the prospect for successful attribution is that it could, as been, has already been discussed, is that it could both deter bad actors in the first place, and that it could also help lead to more successful mitigation as an event is unfolding. Understanding who perpetrated an attack uh, it might give insight into what to do next, or to know what lab something might be leaking out of could help you stem that before it keeps going further. And of course, attribution is required to be able to hold any actor accountable. Um, when in the situation, though, of attempting to attribute uh, a pathogen to its probable source, uh, as Dr. Anders already noted, th there's several things that could be done. There there's context clues that can be used. You know, where did it come from? Who was the first person that was sick? What was the first animal? Uh, if something's going on in an active conflict zone, that should be considered. Uh, there's the intelligence. You know, is there, has there been communications captured? Could there be whistleblowers? Could there be movement of suspected uh, technologies used for it. And then, of course, there, there's the forensics, as was already mentioned. 
forensics itself can take several different forms. It can be the, the characterization of the pathogen uh, in terms of its uh, aerosolized size or whether something's been added to it, the, the proteins on the surface, the morphology, and of course the atoms and molecules that comprise the pathogen. There, there are limitations, though, as has been noted, and uh, one is that biology replicates, and so the, the first portion of it that was made may not be the portion that you see, and you lose a lot of information as pathogens go through hosts. Uh, and of course, some of the ones that are most concerned about are the ones that are exponentially increasing, and so you're getting a lot more of them. Um, but that replication is being directed by something. It's being directed by the genome. And that genome, too, is susceptible to forensic analysis. Uh, to clarify some terms, you know, analysis of the, of the genome for signs of engineering is what we call genetic engineering detection. And then uh, understanding, you know, who engineered the genome is typically called genetic engineering attribution. Um, detection is a prerequisite for attribution. Um, and genetic en engineering attribution is a powerful tool, but it's really one tool in a toolbox that can be used as part of a broader forensics toolkit. Um, and again, since some of that information can be lost, I, I think it's one of the most uh, powerful ones to be, be focusing on. Uh, it's that kind of insight that really spurred my, my colleagues and I to uh, build on this and uh, try to do some work at genetic engineering attribution. We saw the advances in machine learning, uh, sequencing, and compute coming along and realized that there might be an opportunity uh, to do something with this as well as, you know, seeing the concern from it. Uh, so we, we decided to hold a competition. This happened, uh, it wrapped up in early 2020. It was with uh, a partnership with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. Um, we, we held a, a very large competition. We had uh, 1,200 users, from, uh, people working on it from 78 countries, 300 teams. Uh, the output of that was, was uh, quite surprising. If we gave the teams 10 guesses on where um, a genome came from, this is on a, a kind of toy set of uh, plasmids, as they're called for bacteria, uh, they were able to estimate the predicted lab of origin with a 95% confidence. Uh, if we gave them just one guess, they would be able to do it with 80% confidence. Now, uh, it's important to note that, you know, this is uh, from a, a kind of specific data set for bacteria, and so it doesn't necessarily apply uh, broadly, but we really saw this as a, a really impressive way of showing the capability of attribution and that there might be, there might be more promise here. And so uh, I, I really think there's a, a lot that we can be doing here. I think as... Um, uh, as the U.S. invests in and grows the bioeconomy, we can be really be doing more in terms of the attribution front. Uh, I think the bioeconomy will give us new signals to be looking at, but also as we build it up, we can do safety and security by design. Some of the some of the points that uh, Kevin S. felt made that I think uh, are also important here. Um, and I also want to note that attribution. We've talked about it a lot in the kind of who done it context uh, today. But uh, it also can be giving credit where credit's due and when things are impressive and we like them and being able to show who made it and maybe that another nation didn't, uh, we can be giving credit for that. So I, I think there's a lot of incentives to, to be developing that. Um, and I, I won't discuss it in the interest of time, but you know, attribution is really just the beginning of the, of the next steps. Uh, there, there could be legal proceedings afterwards, policy or military action that could be undertaken. And of course, there's always the, the court of public opinion as well. So there's, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I, I don't want to misrepresent our results uh, as kind of showing it's accomplished, but 
I, I really do hope that the, the message that I can, I can give the commission is that there, there's a lot of promise here. Um, there's rarely a, a smoking gun uh, in, in these instances, but of course I think for most crimes that's actually rarely the case. Uh, and so I think human ingenuity, ingenuity never ceases to amaze me. And so I think if we take attribution, forensics, and really biosurveillance as well quite seriously, uh, along with some of the other recommendations the commission has made in the past, uh, I, I really think we can uh, realize the potential of all this technology <clears throat> while mitigating much of the downside. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Sweat. Uh, thank you all. So. Um, uh, Incidentally, I wanted to uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Andrews. I know you were actively involved in the anthrax investigation, and uh, obviously it was good to hear that you believe that our, our uh, detection capacities are, have been greatly improved in the uh, a couple of decades plus uh, since then. So here's a, uh, a, a scenario which uh, it seems to me, based on the testimony we've heard today, is um, you know not wildly implausible. Um, let, let's say we're, uh, the U.S. is involved in a, uh, a conflict of some kind with one of those four countries we've mentioned, Russia and North Korea, which we're pretty confident do have biological weapons capacity, China and Iran, which I conclude probably do. But let's say we're in a conflict, and in the middle of that conflict, um, people are getting sick. It's a little like what you described in the U.S., so there the challenge to us, I, I would think, is not as in, um, oh, in, in COVID-19 where we look back is still and say, now how did this start? Who, who, who's responsible for it? Or even in the anthrax investigation, who, who did this? But, but it's who did this now? How do we determine or can we who did this? To who, well, one, is it a, a result of biological weapons or just an outbreak of disease, as you said, in the case you cited, Dr. Presner? And two, um, who's responsible? Because that would immediately determine for our a, a national command authority how they respond to it with uh, one of those foreign nations. So my, my question really is, um, based on what all of you know and are doing, public, private, academic, um, are, do we ha does the U.S. have the capacity to make that informed decision um, in, a, in a timely way now? Well, thank you for that question. A bit of a challenging question to that, but uh, yeah. I'll try to take a stab at it and let my colleagues also weigh in on this as well as what their thoughts are. So in, in terms of, uh, you know, a timely attribution, I talked about the advances in technology, and I think that certainly we've compressed that timeline that, you know, in those last 20 years from taking, you know, weeks to months to, you know, longer and compressing that to a much shorter time frame where we can very well characterize the biological material. We've also expanded that capability at the NB fact besides just doing the molecular analysis of the genome, uh, uh, but we can also do some of the biochemical analysis of the materials as well using more chemical type of instrumentation to better characterize those materials. So as talked about, you know, other particulates that might be added, looking at particle size, we can make those types of determinations to determine whether this is consistent with something that's natural outbreak or is this something that's man-made. Um, also along the same lines, obviously, genomics can also provide you with some of that information. But as I alluded to during my opening statement, a lot of it, too, is dependent upon the intelligence information that we obtain at that time. 
whether there's satellite imagery showing that there's movement and deployment of, you know, weapons being positioned that are nearby a place where now is, you know, the, the source of a, uh, an epidemic at that point. Um, you know, that certainly would provide useful information to aid the attribution piece. Uh, certainly the knowledge of uh, more detailed information about what's going on within specific programs in terms of biological agents, strains even, other research that's going on there, that also would help us with the attribution process. Uh, so I think that to answer your question, yes, I think that we could do this in a very timely manner, um, but I'll defer to my colleagues here for their uh, thoughts okay. and perspectives as that's well. That's a good beginning, Dr. Pesner. You know, our responsibility at CDT is normally to determine the source, and we often are trying to characterize person, place, and time right. when people are getting ill. And as far as the attribution piece, that's where we usually rely on our law enforcement colleagues to, to make that decision. Yeah. Dr. Sweat. Uh, I'll just build on that on saying that in addition to the tools that were discussed, I think one thing which is really at the start of all attribution is the biosurveillance. You know, much more comprehensive biosurveillance could make a lot of these investigations much easier. If you have hundreds of you know, troops infected, uh, it's quite difficult to know where that may have started, what were they associated with at the outset, what were they by, what was going on. But uh, I, I think there's, there's prospects for, for technology if invested in. Uh, the commission has outlined some of these wearables and non-invasive ones where people could tell whether they're infected before they're showing symptoms much more comprehensive screening. Uh, I, I'm not saying it's a, it's a solved problem, but if we pick this up when two troops who maybe were in a certain location by someone else were infected, uh, that can be one more piece of information that can be combined with all the other tools that have been discussed that could help us try to understand what happened and piece things together. Excellent, thank you all. Congressman Greenwood. Thank you. I think I just have one question and it's for Dr. Pebsner. Um, you talked about the, um, the, the uh, fragility or the, the, the inadequacy of our public health system. Um, and of course, everybody's been saying that for the last three years. Uh, and I, I hate to say it, but I suspect three years from now we'll still be saying it. And, and the reasons for that, I think, are um, there's no constituency for it. You know, I mean, it just really is, unless you, you know, have a hill day and you bring all the public health people from around the country to, to uh, you know, lobby their members of Congress. Uh, that Maybe that happens, I don't know, but it, 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 it's not a, it, there isn't much of a constituency. No, no member of Congress goes to a town hall meeting and they say, where's, you know, why aren't you doing something about our public health system? They, most of them don't really even know what the public health system is, right? And then I think another reason for that is that um, uh, it, there's a question as to is this a federal responsibility, a state responsibility, or local responsibility? So probably more Republicans and Democrats might say something like, you know, the federal government's supposed to do those things that states can't do, you know, at all, or, or they can do it better than states. And, and a lot of members of Congress would say, you know, we've got runaway spending. Why don't the states do this? You know, why don't the counties do this? Um, and so uh, I guess my question is, um, since this is a part of the world in which you live, um, what do you think could create a political, I mean, if COVID, if a million dead Americans hasn't created a groundswell for public health, you know, what is the, you know, how do we create one? That's an easy question, right? 
Yeah, if, if I could answer that clearly and concisely, I'd have a best-selling book out tomorrow. But, you know, I think that it's, it's the challenge that we always face because public health is the thing that you always want when you need it. And people aren't ready to make the investment necessary to sustain it all the time. Now, I think that, you know, CDC and HHS, we're very encouraged right now with the funds we receive through American Rescue Plan that we can do some of the data modernization that we can attract and bring in more talent into the public health workforce and strengthen our local and state public health departments. Because everything that we do at CDC is in collaboration with our state and local health departments. And we are only as strong as they are. So I think they were all working together to really, again, modernize our systems, bring in and train more talent. And we have people focused on that workforce element as part of these funds. And because we have this flexibility, we hope that we can have some gains in strengthening that infrastructure, and then hopefully with some additional support from Congress, we can sustain that over time. And just to follow up on that, I don't know how the, I don't really know how the public health system um, is financed. Is, is, maybe you can help me with this. Um, it's a block grant. Oops, I can ask that. <laughs> it's, it's a block grant that comes from the CDC to the states, Okay. basically. And then there are some grant programs. I'm going to address the rest of my questions to Dr. Shalala. <laughs> I'd appreciate that. <laughs> um, and so, Dr. Shalala, uh, is there is there a requirement for matching funds at all from the states? Okay. Well, I'm just wondering then, then if, if maybe that's a, a a way to create incentive if you if, if the states know that they get, you know, if you match this, you get the federal dollars, if you match it, it becomes somewhat of an incentive for the states to then get some free money by putting up some of their own. And it, be, and it helps to separate the politics of state versus federal um, uh, responsibility. Is that fair? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's all I have, Dr. Shalala. Uh, well, let's go to Secretary Shalala. <laughs> You can address your questions to me. I'll yeah, be prepared. I can address questions. Well, I consider the EIS program the uh, crown jewel of the CDC. Um, so let's uh, delve into it a little more. You actually train people get EIS training. It's a two-year program still. Yeah, and uh, for people all over the world, and it's really the CDC's access to the public health leaders around the world, as I remember. Is that correct? So yes, we have uh, we have people from all over the world that come year for, come in for the two year training program, like Dr. Sweat's fiance, and we also have a sibling program at CDC, our field epidemiology training program, right. that's modeled after that. That is in many countries where we're trying to provide similar training with people from the Ministry of Health in those countries, so we can build that same level of capacity, but keep that talent in country, because the overwhelming majority of people that come from other countries to do EIS end up staying with CDC in the United States. So th that's great for CDC and for us, but we're trying to keep that talent in those countries to really build that capacity. Exactly, and when there's an outbreak, it's very important because you can pick up the phone and you can call one of the people that you've trained and get an accurate answer. We've got more than 3,000 living alumni that are in leadership positions all over the world. So it's an incredible network that we're able to call upon as resource when there's situations anywhere in the world. Um, and um, it also gives you a kind of cultural sensitivity to the whole process, I think. It does, and that's something that over the last couple of years, uh, we have a renewed 
uh, in greater focus on diversity, equity, inclusion. We've changed in accessibility. We changed a lot of things about that program so that we can increase the diversity, because that's been one of the strengths of the IS. It started with all white male physicians back in 1951. Mm -hmm. Now the majority of our officers are women, and we have physicians, nurses, veterinarians. We have all of the ologists, you know, the epidemiologists, the anthropologists, the microbiologists, the virologists, and we need that diversity of skill sets given the complexity of the situations that we need to deploy and investigate and respond to. And it's actually the core program in the CDC. It's too bad that in many ways the CDC has added some things on that its identity was very much with that EIS program. I was only on the phone once with the AIS uh, officers during the Hanta, Hanta virus outbreak, and it's a famous story. The Four Corners. Because I was listening, um, I had done my Peace Corps volunteer. Part of my training was in the four corners of Arizona. And uh, we were on the phone, and they were trying to identify the source of the Hantavirus. And um, I actually said, have you asked the medicine men? They uh -huh. went and asked the medicine men, and they said it was the deer mice, my only contribution to the and CDC. They, and they were right. Yeah, they were right. Yeah, oh, they, were absolutely, uh, they were absolutely right. I wanted to ask you about data, though. Because part of the challenge for the CDC is you don't have the authority to say to the states, this is very important, exactly what data in a uniform way that you need to be able to track uh, a virus or an outbreak. Is that correct? So we work at the Council of State and Territorial Epidemiologists right. to, re to determine reporting standards that the states right. agree to. And then we have a nationally notifiable disease system. So things that are within that, we get standardized reporting. But that's part of what we're working on as part of the data modernization initiative at CDC that was highlighted during COVID. We need, we need a nimble system. Yeah. So if there's a new pathogen emerges and we need to add new questions that all local health departments can enter data and all that can come in so we can quickly analyze that, that's part of what we're working on. And that on. was the challenge during COVID, as I remember. Yeah, we have frat, we've, this is what we've been asking for for years. Is an, you, you, it takes a significant investment. We didn't have that, so we had all these fragmented data systems all over the country so you've got really smart people that were working under a stressful situation under a newly emerging pathogen, trying to piece together all these variable streams of data and make sense out of it. Meanwhile, Johns Hopkins, which could be more nimble, was running its own data. Absolutely. A national data system. And so now we have a new center for forecasting and analytics at CDC, and we've uh, been able to draw on some excellent talent uh, to help staff that, and we're building that up to really expand our capabilities so that we can be more nimble, and mm -hmm. like Hopkins was in this Thank case. Thank you. Sure. Um, Dr. Sweat, have you talked to the federal government about uh, your new capacities? We have. We, we, we've had opportunities to- Other than talking to your fiance, <laughs> the government program, yeah. We, we've had opportunities to, to speak with um, uh, members of the intelligence community, particularly IARPA as well, which, which has done some notable work with their Felix program on genetic engineering detection. Uh, we've also had opportunities to, to brief the White House on, on some of this work as well. Um, and we, uh, we did keep the FBI apprised of the competition uh, as it was going on, um, too. And some of my colleagues who worked on the program as well from um, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, some of those are now also in government. And so, uh, yeah, we've made efforts to make them aware of what we see for the potential here. Um, thank you. Dr. Anders. Um, I wasn't quite sure. Um, how have your attribution methods improved since 2001? I mean, what, what 
what are the elements that um, that we can see in terms of improvement? So I think there's really two elements of that that I would highlight. And one is just having a better understanding now, of, based on our experience with the Ameritrax investigation, as to what our true analytical requirements were. Because there was a group of scientists that was assembled at the beginning of that investigation that was just spitballing ideas. We should look for this. We should look for components of growth media. We should do this, that, and the other. And a lot of those panned out and had you know, absolutely no relevance whatsoever to the investigation. Mm -hmm. So that was one aspect. The other aspect is the technology uh, advancement since that time. Like I said before, uh, we've been able to take there we go. Sorry about that. Uh, we've been able to take all those methods that we used back then that took months to conduct, and we can now do that in a matter of hours or even a few days. Mm -hmm. So we get those results much more quickly. We can provide that information to the investigators so they can focus in on specific elements that they want to focus on as part of their case. Mm -hmm. I yield back unless Mr. Green would want me to ask him a question. Uh, please don't. <laughs> uh, thanks, uh, Donna. Uh, Senator Dashle. Well, first of all, Dr. Anders, I want to thank you for all of your good work those many years ago. I'd just be curious um, as to what your confidence level is with what we now view to be the results of that investigation. So the results of that investigation, I think we have very high confidence in, in the work that was done. and. Uh, the outcomes of that investigation. Um, it, again, you know, it was a slow, long, painful process, as you're well aware. Um, but I really am confident that given today's environment and the capabilities that we've developed and since that time, that we could do that in a matter of uh, just days or even weeks if it took that long. And in fact, we've demonstrated that on a number of occasions. We've done that with the more recent ricin cases. Ricin is a toxin that we have more cases of as biological threats and, and biocrimes in the United States than any other thing that we've uh, seen over the last 10 plus years. Um, we typically resolve those cases within a, a week at most, and that includes everything from the characterization of the toxin to the point where we've gotten attribution through fingerprints, DNA, what have you. Uh, so so th that's, that's my level of confidence in that. And the other thing I want to tie in here, especially related to um, uh, Dr. Dean's comments earlier with regards to the UN General Secretary, uh, sorry, the UN you know, General Secretary's mechanism for uh, for bio, for bio, is that we've also been participating in the uh, interlaboratory uh, analysis of materials and, and a round robin type of analysis from participating countries, and time and again. The NBFAC has stood on top in terms of being able to provide the results uh, that support attribution for where these biological samples come from. So I think at least on the international stage, it also helps to serve as a deterrent to demonstrate that the U.S. is at the forefront of biological attribution. Well, I, I certainly agree we're at the forefront, and I, 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 I would also agree that we've made enormous strides in our technological capacity to determine attribution. But I'm still, I guess, still puzzled, and I'd be interested, we've touched on a little bit, but I, I'd be interested if any one of you could elaborate on why it has been so difficult for us to clarify with some degree of confidence attribution around COVID. 
Can anybody address that? Just Maybe in an attempt, I'll, I'll say I think it kind of underscores the work that we need to be putting in to be in a better position next time. Uh, I, I don't think we've really uh, done the work to, to build the tools to be able to undertake the analysis, to have the data sets that we need even to be able to try to do it, um, have the degree of early warning to pick things up and have a baseline of what uh, biological threats look like out there and what aberrations to that uh, look like as well. Um, but I, I, I think the, the work from our competition really kind of shows that, uh, you know, this, this was a toy set, so I don't want to say it could be this high, but 95% uh, within the top 10 accuracy, I think, kind of sets the bar for where we could be going. And I, I think that's really just the start uh, as well. Genetic engineering attributions, just really one type. Uh, I think there'll be a lot of opportunities as biology becomes digitized that we'll have more signal streams to be looking at, more data to be uh, training models and algorithms on, and hopefully more opportunities to build these types of tools so that we uh, can say with much more certainty next time, because um, obviously we all know what the consequences of that are now. Well, we can leave that question at that. I, I, I don't think there probably is a, a good answer, but I appreciate it very much, Dr. Sweat. Let me just, one final question to you, Dr. Pesner. Um, the $3 billion is a very encouraging development, and I really appreciate the fact that we've seen the recognition of the need for the investment, and I, uh, uh, you, you talked about the need for systems training, uh, people in training, and I assume that the $3 billion is going to be invested in all three categories in order to improve public health. But it seems to me that's almost a bucket in the ocean compared to what is necessary for sustainable systems development, training, and the acquisition of the people we need to do the job at the public health level and to create the infrastructure over time. But could you give me some degree of appreciation for what $3 billion means and what you think, in your estimate, it'll take for us to be, to go beyond that? So what I can say is your interpretation is correct that $3 billion is um, insufficient to strengthen the nation's public health workforce to where we would all want it to be. And so it's going to take far greater investment, but this is a great start. Uh, you know, this has gone out to 107 jurisdictions. And again, each jurisdiction had the opportunity to put in and say how they'd use these funds for workforce, the data systems, and all elements of that, the systems, the people, and the training. And each jurisdiction that received these funds has this flexibility to apply these funds based on they might have existing strengths and staffing and need more in the data systems. Other might be slightly different. So there's a lot of flexibility there. And that was what was so key with these dollars and what was really unique and that the jurisdictions were so appreciative because, again, normally they're so restricted on how they can use the money that they receive that to be able to do this, it was mentioned earlier that state and locals and CDC, we need that easy button that was mentioned so that when there's an emergency that we, we can buy what's needed, we can invest what's needed, and we haven't been able to do that. And this is the closest we've come. We've got a little mini easy button that's going to get us started, and it's going to take uh, more analysis and um, substantial investment 
to sustain this and build upon this initial $3 billion. Well, thank, thank each of you for your excellent presentations. Thanks, Tom. <clears throat> Fred Upton. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. The, uh, I think we all, everyone including in the room, really appreciate your, your hard work and the, the leadership that you provided in your respective uh, departments. Uh, the question that I really have is, you know, as we look around the country and we talk to companies, and it seems like everybody's looking for workers. What is what is the shortages, or what what? Um, and and this, I want you, Dr. Sweat, to go last since you're a university, providing the tools, the talent to, to do this. So you've got some expertise, I would guess, with other universities like Michigan, uh, <laughs> in in terms of developing uh, the talent that then has a job when they get their when they get their degree. But what it what are some of the shortages that you're facing in terms of manpower uh, in your your respective uh, agencies? And and have you used the tool? So just a little. So I was very involved in first robotics. Uh, Dean Kamen uh, and what he's done in, you know, with with high schools. I don't know if you've reached out talent wise uh, to to look at those graduates. I know that the uh, secretary of the or the uh, uh, the, the commandant of the Air Force Academy, the first thing that they look at for for students coming in is did they participate in FIRST Robotics uh, somewhere in the country. So I don't know if you're using those type of tools uh, to, to really get, get people to be involved in this, but I'd be interested in where you see the FTEs uh, in the future coming and what your needs are. Thank you for that question, and I think part of the problem there is that there is a competition, um, certainly at the federal government level and even at the state level. I think the states probably, and you have, probably have this experience better than the FBI does, um, there's just not um, salaries and there's not the potential there for uh, you know, attracting highly qualified and uh, and well-educated scientists, at least at you know postgraduate levels, um, they tend to go to you know the industrial settings where there's more money available to them. Um, that's the big thing I see in terms of being able to attract uh, those types of uh, knowledge uh, sets. The other. Um, aspect I see there, at least for the FBI, is that, uh, I mean, we have obviously security requirements and things of that nature. Um, and unfortunately, uh, it seems like, you know, a lot of our uh, college-educated folks also dabble recreationally in things that perhaps they should or should not, subject to debate. Um, but it's hard for them to get security clearances. Um, but even when they do, they even become more attractive uh, employees for both the private sector and other federal uh, positions. Um, so we tend to bring people in for a short period of time and then quickly lose them to other, posi other positions elsewhere. So it becomes a vicious cycle of uh, basically acquisition, training, and then turnover. Uh, just a quick follow-up. So how many vacancies, do you, how many people do you need today that, that you don't have? Just off the top of my head, and I'm speaking from the laboratory division for the FBI, uh, we currently have about a half dozen, well, I'm speaking in terms of a broad scientist, 
Um, so um, specifically with regards to biological, I think we're down two just now, but we don't have that large of a staff anyway as it relates to biological threats. Uh, I can't speak for the other biologists in, their, in the laboratory who do DNA casework. There's certainly a backlog there that could use some additional help. So uh, at CDC, we, and in public health in general, we face the challenge of attracting talent right now. And state and local health departments, it's even harder. And it depends on which state. For example, I can't even get one of my EIS officers to match to Senator Daschle State because it's not deemed to be a geographically desirable place unless someone has a personal affiliation there. I've got everybody who wants to go to LA County, they want to go to New York City, okay? I struggle to get people if I want to place them in Michigan as well. So those are challenges. So, you know, one of the things that we're facing at CDC is, you know, we're hoping that we can get some sort of ability to offer incentive pay to place people in the, where they're needed most. I need officers and we need staff assigned to health department in Mississippi, in Alabama, these places where the health departments are struggling to attract physicians. I could place someone there if I had the ability to have incentive pay. The other thing is we are authorized, but we've not been obligated funds for student loan repayment. Through the American Rescue Plan, we've been able to cover that right now, but once those funds go away in a couple years, I don't have the ability to offer that anymore. That's another great incentive to attract talent. I'm talking to fellowship programs related to health and, and, and medicine all over the country. They're all struggling right now to attract, or many of them are. I mean, public health has just been beaten up so badly. Science has been beaten up so badly during COVID pandemic. Many of us, it's like, why would you want to go into that? Where you have great evidence to show that something's effective, and certain groups are going to ignore that and, and, and beat you up over it. So this has really affected the public health workforce. We've had great attrition during COVID and lost so much talent. And we're struggling to bring it back in. Yeah, because of the whole vaccine debate, I had some people leave the leave the field. They just didn't want to take the mm. the hit. Absolutely. So as hard as it, as it is for us at CDC, it's so much harder at state and local health departments. So we really need that. They need that flexibility to be able to offer higher salaries to attract people and be more competitive with other industries. You know, right now one of the major areas we're talking about is data modernization. So. How are we going to compete with the Googles and these other companies that can offer three, four times the salaries we can? And we need that level of innovation. We need that level of quality in our data science positions as much as they do. But how do we compete with them? So those are some things that recommendations from the commission could really help with. Firing thousands of people. Yeah, there, there are some more available. <laughs> but they're still not coming to us. I'll just add an anecdote on that last point. Um, you know, we held this prize competition with $60,000 in prizes, and we awarded most of the prizes to foreign nationals, and many people had no affiliation. We tried to write up the paper with them. They're independent researchers. Uh, there was none of the major tech company names on any of the top 10 finalists in, in the competition. Uh, in terms of getting interest in it, the other thing I'll just say maybe in terms of an anecdote is, you know, we tried to publish attribution work prior to the pandemic, and uh, it got kicked down the, you know, there's different levels of prestige in journals. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't considered a very important problem uh, and got published much lower than you'd probably anticipate or hopefully that it would now. So, yeah, I, I think there's a major mismatch here in terms of uh, the kind of power and, and prospects for this uh, technology to do good uh, and in incentives for it uh, where, where a lot of the talent is going. 
the hope with the competition was to try to shed some light on how, how tractable uh, some of these things could be, but uh, I, I still think there's plenty more work to be done. Uh, thanks, Fred. Um, if if uh, we conclude the hearing now, not only will I take the stress off of our two colleagues who have to go on to other um, events, but in full disclosure, I will be able to head north and home earlier. And this time, building on recent experience, I shall take the train. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Praise Asella. <laughs> anyway, uh, you've been a great panel. I, I want to say very briefly, Dr. Anders, I know you know and have worked with uh, Dr. George, our um, executive director, for a long time. And she tells me and reminds me that you've been very helpful to the commission on our work. So I thank you for that. And Dr. Pevsner, I want to say that uh, one of the uh, things that happened, I think, during the pandemic was that people were <laughs> puzzled by the array of federal agencies involved, including CDC, because it was all politicized in a way that was very harmful. But what does CDC really do? People were saying to me, I want to say that you're sitting on top of a, of a sort of a treasure. Uh, I, I bet hardly anybody in the country knows there is an epidemic intelligence service. It's existed for a while. It has great capabilities, and it has a worldwide network. Uh, uh, so I, I hope that, um, I don't know, in the next phase, and maybe we can help in our report, we can uh, help to publicize the fact that you're there. Um, I, I want to thank uh, the three of you and, and the witnesses that have preceded. You've been extraordinarily helpful to us. I think you will not only inform our uh, Blueprint 2.0, but uh, you'll greatly improve uh, our uh, analysis and recommendations. And uh, I want to thank all of you uh, who came out today to uh, hear this. I think this morning we had the biggest attendance we've ever had at one of our meetings. And uh, I, whatever the reason, I greatly appreciate it. And I must say, I'm very proud to be on this commission. This is an extraordinarily experienced group of uh, colleagues here uh, who, um, who really have a, a record of commitment to the national public interest. And I thought today I showed the experience they have and asked wonderful questions, which uh, you all answered. So um, if I don't any of my colleagues want to make closing comments. Uh, if not, uh, to uh, all, thank you. Travel by whatever means you go safely home. <laughs> thank you very much.